Ciao. Ciao. Jalo Chow Chow Podcast has returned. What have I done to you? What do you want from me? We want you to listen. We want you to subscribe. And we want you to join our Facebook group. Do you know how to do those things? I don't know. I don't know anything. Well then, it seems we have no choice. <laughs> Everybody, and welcome to this exciting episode of the Jallo Chow Chow podcast. It is volume two, episode 13, and today we're going to talk about a black veil for Lisa. I am joined by my co host Al from the motherland of Jallo Films, Italy. Ciao, ciao, everybody. And our good friend Matt is not with us today. Um, it's probably about 7.30-ish in the morning where he's at in the West Coast, so he's probably sleeping. Um, but that's not why he's not with us today. He's got some stuff going on with his, I believe, a movie that he's working on, uh, or I think a class that he's teaching, or maybe it's both. Um, but at any rate, he um, he declined to join us today, um, not that he didn't want to. And we had a film lined up for this episode. It was Carnal Circuit also known as The Insatiables with Robert Hoffman um, that we were going to cover. And we, Al and I really wanted Matt on the show for that movie because it takes place in L.A. And it's just, it's very, you know, swanky, 60s fashion, stylistic. And to not have Matt on that discussion is just seems, I don't know, blasphemous to a certain extent. Um <laughs> So we decided to switch over to A Black Veil for Lisa for a couple of reasons. It's still in the proto-Jalo period. And also, um, two of the actors in the film, uh, Robert Hoffman and uh, what's her name? Lucia... Luciana Paluzzi. Luciana Paluzzi mm -hmm. as Lisa. Um, and they're both in Carnal Circuit. So we figured it was a, a nice little bridge between the, the two episodes. So, um, Al, how's it going over there in Italy? Uh, pretty good. Pretty hot, but 
everything else is all right. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's quite hot here in the states. I am on the east coast, and um, we have been dealing with you know upper eighties, low nineties um, for a pretty consistent period of time for since June, really. So that's about it for intros, I guess. Again, we we'd like to have Matt here, but um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully for next episode we'll be able to jump back in um, and have a three-way. Uh, never mind. Don't say So today uh, we're recording on July 16th, and I believe that uh, episode 12, where we talked about Double Face, was released, um, let's see, about two weeks ago. Um, And we did get some feedback on the podcast, uh, and (laughs) um, I wanted to read it um, because it's fascinating stuff that we get. Um, First of all, on the Jalo Chow Chow Volume 2 Facebook group, we have a comment from Zalo Tifoso. I'm hoping I'm saying that right. It's spelled with a D first, but I think the D might be silent. D-Z-A-L-L-O-T-I-F-O-Z-O-S-O. Um, anyway, Zalo writes, couple things. I like long episodes as long as I'm not listening to them in one go, so I get more stuff to listen to, which is nice. Uh, like a lot of Al's take on how they got that bastard smiling. Um, oh yeah, they were t- we were talking about uh, Kinski, right? Yeah, um, and how he he finally managed to to smile, and that was the that was the thing that was more <laughs> revolutionary <laughs> than the green screen. That was that was your take. Uh-huh. Um, talking about remakes, trendy as ever, alongside Argento. I think it would be interesting to hear a new take on. Bay of Blood too. I think he's re- I think he's referring to like a redemption episodes or mm-hmm. episodes where we go and redo um, the same film that we did before, not necessarily a remake. Um, I think I, it'd be interesting to hear a new take on Bay of Blood as it seems that your take on it has changed the ending music and all. And there's no Al on that old one. Um, should Al say the Italian language titles? Question mark. Love your podcast. The only reason I registered in the fucking Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Zalo. Or and uh, apologies if I've butchered your name there, but I appreciate the the comments. It sounds um, like he feels get... about Facebook the same way I do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, and I like how he wrote the fucking Facebook because that's kind of I think the original way they referred to Facebook was the Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can bring it back. Uh, if, Why not? <laughs> exactly. Um, so we've had 261 downloads for episode 12 since it was put out. So a fair amount of people have listened to it. Um, I do think that we got a lot of people listening to a hyena in a safe. Uh, we're getting close to like 500 on that one. I'm not really sure what it is about certain episodes that peak more interest. Like if I'm looking at it, it starting with when we kind of came back. So naked, you die part one and part two mm-hmm. part one 
has 366 downloads and part two has twice as many. And I think part two is when we actually covered the film. So that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I was wondering about that, too, because unless there's somewhere indicated that the film discussion is part two, I don't see why part two has twice as many, well, almost twice as many downloads as part one. And then it drops off for the very next one, which was Deadly Inheritance. So Right. I don't know if there's some, Right, and then, uh, and then jumps back up again. So... It, it, it's it may be you know a combination of factors it may be how the various you know podcast clients like if you're using apple if you're using spotify if you're using uh i think we're on amazon and trying to think of who else does podcasts but i've i've kind of set up the the system so that it pushes out the podcast to everything that is available Mm -hmm. uh as far as podcast like networks right so it may be that, you know, people just happen to catch an episode because it's new and more people noticed when episode 11 came out. But that doesn't really explain um, Naked You Die Part 2. Although it may be something really simple like on your phone, it says Jalo Chow Chow Volume 2 Episode 9, Naked You Die. And maybe the part that says Part 2 is cut off. Huh. And so... The, the part two would actually show up at the top right. uh, of your list, and people started there. So it could be that. Yeah, or maybe they see both of them and just think it was some kind of glitch where they got the notification twice. Yeah. And, and another um, part of it might just be the title of the film. You know, If I'm searching yeah. for Jalo podcasts and there's a bunch of movies that I haven't really heard of, which for the proto period might not be impossible something called yeah, right. naked you die i'd be like oh let's check that one out you know <laughs> as opposed to deadly inheritance how boring is that absolutely yeah um but then a hyena in a safe why is that yeah you know well it maybe those are just ones that more people know about or they've at least yeah, i mean i had of. never even heard of that film so yeah I think Hyena in a Safe was was one where we were we were finishing up Deadly Inheritance watching like on our own. And it was the first film that um, Matt was going to come back and talk about with us. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, there's this other one. And (laughs) he just happened to kind of scroll through on the um, what the hell was it? The Jallo Realm YouTube channel. Uh Is that what it was called? Um, and he found that one. He's like, I want to talk about that one because there's this woman who's got uh, her hair tied under her chin. And that's why I want to talk about it. <laughs> okay. And it ended up being like a really good film. <laughs> yeah. Well, it'd be interesting if we do, uh, if we do a redemption type thing for uh, crystal bird or whatever bird with the crystal plumage, because that's one that's very well known. Right. Just from the title. It'd be interesting to see what the downloads are for that compared to some of these lesser-known yeah. titles that people might not recognize. Right. And and Matt had a really good point uh, in the last episode, and I'm trying to remember whether I edited it out or I didn't, but he said, screw the volume two, renumber everything so that it looks like we have, you know, close to 100 episodes <laughs> and see if that changes. <laughs> yeah, I think that was in um, the, I think you didn't edit that out. <laughs> 
because I remember okay. hearing that. Okay. I did edit out the part where we were talking about the cable guy coming to my mom's house. Um, <laughs> so, you must have, because I don't it, remember that. It, <laughs> it really had no no bearing or context whatsoever. Um, anyway, uh, just another <laughs> quick show feedback. Um, I've been spending a lot of time on the Jalloholics Facebook group, and apologies, last week or last podcast episode, I kept referring it to the Jallo Realm page, but Jallo Realm is the YouTube channel, and Jalloholics is the sister uh, Facebook page, right. and it's a closed group, um, but there's uh, exponentially more members in this group than are in our group, so I figured I'd cross-post um this episode 12 to that group and we got a bunch of likes um i know that our downloads have gone up since i'm posting in both places Mm -hmm. but we did get (laughs) one uh comment from someone named omar sheriff and um i'm gonna assume that that's how you pronounce his facebook name because Omar Sharif, I think, is spelled differently. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Omar Sharif is spelled S-H-A-R-I-F. Uh-huh. And this person spells their name S-H-E-R-I-F. F. Two Fs. Um, and his comment was um, quite elaborate and detailed. He <laughs> writes, wow, you guys sound like complete arseholes. Um Ouch. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, any feedback is good feedback. It means that people are listening. Um, And I was going to, and Al and I talked about this offline, and I was going to respond. Um, However, I figure if I respond on the podcast and I get another response from Omar, that means he's still listening. Mm. So um, that's the plan. So um, I'd, I'd love to know a little bit more about why we sound like complete arseholes. Um, I could probably guess what some of the examples might be. Um, but, you know, I, I, I appreciate criticism with details, and this one doesn't have any, yeah. so it's hard to take it seriously. I don't know. Yeah, what de- do you think, Al? Details would be a lot better. Um, negative feedback is fine as long as it is constructive or at least indicative of more precisely what they had a problem with. I mean, just right. calling us arseholes is fine. I mean, okay, I get it. You, you heard it. You didn't like it or you don't like <laughs> us, but that, that doesn't tell me anything as far as what I could do to uh, maybe make it better or to improve it. Or, you know, are we, arseholes because we rant too much are we arseholes because we waste so much of your time with the scene by scene are we arseholes Mm. because we uh picked on robert (laughs) (laughs) or what you know uh well i'm wondering if it's maybe just our tones of voices and the way we talk and you know matt has definitely has like a west coast united states of america kind of accent yeah um i don't know if you want to call it an accent it's just more of like a manner of speaking or a um whatever that word is is it colloquialisms (laughs) there you go thank you 
<laughs> I knew I was getting there. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, Omar, if you are listening to this next episode, um, which is great, thank you again for listening to this next episode. Um, send us a little bit more details. We'd love to know why you you listened and felt like it's you know calling us arseholes, which is actually kind of cool. Like, do do people say arseholes? I mean, obviously everyone says asshole in you know the United States, but um, is it more common to say it that way if you're from the UK or from that that area of Europe? I, th- I don't know. I think it's more of a UK thing. Yeah, just from what I've gathered in popular culture and reading stuff. So that kind of felt like a badge of honor because I don't think anybody in my entire <laughs> life has ever called me an arsehole. So right. <laughs> thank you, Omar, for that. But, uh, well, and and Omar, you know, um, he his his public information is out there, so I'm not going against any sort of privacy issues. Um, it says he's originally from the UK, but. Um, uh yeah no he he's from the UK lives in the UK so I guess okay. that's what we're talking about um anyway uh I had one more thing to throw out there I got an email from Mikel Hamer um who was talking about um whether or not he wanted us to or if he if we were interested in some of the long lost um episodes of the show where. At one point, Matt started this Chow Chow Network mm-hmm. um, where he I, I love one of the things I love about Matt is that he is so ambitious with some of the things that he gets involved in. And he decided that he was going to do um, a Chow Chow Network for every you know subgenre of Italian film. And like, I think that by doing that, he set himself up to be doing a podcast like every day of the week. Right. Yeah. Uh, in, in order to get it to in order to get it to f- find um, to follow a schedule. So there was one for um, the cannibals. There was one for sexy. There was one for westerns, uh, horror. Um, but I don't know how long it lasted. So uh, Mikel apparently has some of these episodes and was um, asking if we were interested in having them. Um, I don't know. Uh, it's probably it would probably be good for to Matt to have him back just so he has him for um, his records. But um, there was also a mention of the Jalo Score podcast, which I did. I want to say two episodes, maybe, and I don't even know where they are. Um, they were originally hosted on my old JalloScore.com site, which went down, and so all of that has been lost. Um, the last suggestion was. Um, that we do an episode for Diabolique. Uh, I know it's not a, a giallo, but you guys have covered other non-giallo films before. Diabolique doesn't have the style of a giallo. However, the plot has been a big inspiration um, for 20-plus Italian gialli and several Spanish ones. So um, I've, I've never seen it. I think you saw it, didn't you, Al? Oh, yeah. I have a very long history with Diabolique. Uh, the summer that I was 10... And my mother and I came to visit from the States. I discovered the Diabolique uh, comic books. And later when we moved back here for a while, when I was 12, I started reading them. And that went a long way to help me learning Italian. And later, once I came back here in 2010, I tracked down the Mario Bava film. And just recently, they've made a 
a new Diabolic movie that came out earlier this year or around Christmas time. So I love me some Diabolic. Okay. Yeah, we can talk about that. All so day. I wonder it. So when I'm looking up the the comic, uh, is that the what they refer to as the the so the Mario Baba film was called Diabolic Danger Diabolic Danger Yeah Danger Yeah and if you if you watch the English language trailer they actually pronounce it Diabolic Well yeah um but I think uh, Mikel is talking about the 1960 French film Oh. Okay. <laughs> Never mind. Cut all that. Uh, yeah, that French film was pretty cool too. <laughs> Sorry, I heard you say "diabolique," and I was like, "Oh, he got the Italian pronunciation." But, well, yeah, I mean the 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 Mario Baba one is spelled D I A B O L I K. Right. Yeah. Okay. So my bad. Um. Yeah, and and I didn't even know Mario Baba had something to do with that. But you're right; there was a, uh, there was a diabolic, or diabolique film redone in 2021. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it looks like, and it was an Italian production. Yeah, it was an Italian mm-hmm. production. Have you seen that? Oh yeah, yeah. It was supposed to come out the year before, it, but they postponed it because of COVID, and people going to movie theaters wasn't really a happening thing at the time so they postponed it for a okay. year and i think they might have done some reshoots or re-edits and uh yeah both of the films are great but if we're talking about the french black and white film from i don't know whenever it was uh pre-jalo period diabolique that's yeah. that's a great film too and probably a lot closer to jalo than the the comic book about the burglar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. So. Uh, 1955, actually. Yeah, yeah. So it's pretty early. Okay. Um, yeah, I again, I've never seen it. I've heard countless references to it when talking about Jalo films, specifically because the there's this main plot point where someone is thought to be dead. Uh-huh. And then certain weird things happen that make the characters believe that the person either isn't dead or is dead, but is haunting them from the grave. Right. And then by the time you get to the end of the film, the, the reality or the, you know, the, the real truth is revealed in some sort of, uh, um, twist uh, of some sort, but, um, yeah, that would be great. Um, we, we've got a lot teed up, um, for the podcast. Um, I think that, uh, we're getting close to, uh, covering most of the important proto Jolly, but there's maybe four or five left and we don't necessarily have to do them all before we do the Argento stuff. Um, but, um, it's, I, I don't, I don't know. We'll, we'll see how it goes. I mean, it really depends on, um, how often we can get these going, uh, once the summer is over. Right. Um, and what else was I going to say recently? What did I watch? I think I watched strange vice of Mrs. Ward within the last couple of weeks, just because I was, you know, I wanted to sit down and watch a Jallo for entertainment purposes. Cause a lot of times, you know, everybody who's listening, when I wa- sit down to watch a Jallo, uh, it's not necessarily just for entertainment. It's like, I've, it's more like academic 
I mean, I don't want to say that, you know, th- this is, you know, some sort of highbrow college, you know, <laughs> course or anything. But when I'm preparing to talk about the podcast or maybe write something for the website, I do kind of watch the film with a different kind of an eye, uh, especially if it's a film that I'd never seen before or that maybe it's my second time viewing. Well, for and the I didn't podcast, do that. you have to be more analytical and critical of it. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't just sit back yeah. and grab some popcorn and let it wash over you. Right. And, and I've noticed that there are certain films that if you do that, you get bored. Um, and there are other films where you don't. And I, I, I can't really pinpoint which ones those are. Um, cause if I'm watching, if, if I'm watching a film and we're prepping for the podcast, I'm like, I'm watching every scene and I'm trying to pay attention to everything that went into the production. And that kind of keeps my, my interest. But if, um, if the if the film drags, like uh, when we did Double Face last time, there's a midsection of the film that drags for a while, and uh, I think I one time I when I watched it, it I just lost interest or maybe I even fell asleep. But at, at any rate, I decided to throw um, Strange Vice on, and um, man, is that an awesome movie! I love uh, uh, yeah. Strange, did I say Strange Vice? Yeah, I, I um I really enjoy watching that one. Um, Oh, I know what it was because we were talking about the the musical theme that came out of Double Face mm-hmm. by um, Nora Orlandi and how it evolved into the theme that gets played in Strange Vice and then subsequently gets used in Kill Bill. Right. Um, and it kind of made me want to watch the film. So, um, and there's there, there's there's just so many really cool like. I don't know what you call it. Um, when people talk about the quote unquote set pieces, I tend to think that they're talking about like a specific scene or maybe two or three segments of scenes that kind of capture a particular style or energy or moment in the film. Is that what we're, is that what set pieces means to you? Cause it's like, that's a term that I kind of wonder sometimes exactly what people mean. But I think it means literally the set. Like, they built this really uh, fantastical or interesting set, like a dungeon or the interior of a spaceship or something like that. Right. And the the wow factor of that scene would be more where it's happening than exactly what's going on. Right. Okay. Like the the set designers of the film are showing their stuff a little bit, like in um, the original, well, the seventy eight or whatever year Superman film, when he goes to the Fortress of Solitude, right? That is so different than the rest of the film where he's just walking around New York City or Metropolis, and I think those would be considered a set piece, even though not a whole lot of action happens in the Fortress of Solitude. Okay. They're just kind of showing off the the set. Uh, Usually it coincides with some sort of climax or some big, heavy, uh, plot-heavy scene or a twist or something. Right. So. Well, I mean, I I think that's what I assumed as well because I was taking the, you know, I was taking the terminology literally like a set piece being like, quote-unquote, the set, you know, the set where they film the film. Um, but people often refer to Argento's quote unquote murder set pieces. And I guess 
there talking about, you know, the the scene and the set that was created for how they filmed this particular murder. And um, like I was thinking about um, in Strange Vice, there's the scene where the blonde girl, I forget what her name is. Uh, she goes out to meet the person who called um, Julie on the phone. Mm-hmm. And it's this outdoor like garden area in. I think they were in Austria in that film with the hedges. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I consider that whole thing to be a set piece, but you know, considering that it's outside and an externally shot um, for, for most of it, does that still qualify as a calling it a set piece or? Yeah. I don't know because I, mean, I bet those hedges and everything were already there. I don't think mm-hmm. they, rolled out a bunch of hedges out the back of a truck to set up those shots. So that's a good question. Would that count as a set piece? Uh, Yeah, I don't know. When I I think of Argento set pieces, I think of the scene in opera where all the birds are flying around. Okay. And I mean, something like that. Yeah. It's in like a big room. I think it's like a library or something like that. I don't remember. It's a, it's the opera house. Oh, okay. Well, I need to watch that again. <laughs> that was a cool film, and Argento found a way to put a camera to mimic the point of view of one of the ravens. I think they were ravens mm-hmm. um, that were circling. Basically, you know, without giving too much away, they decided that the ravens knew who the killer was, and so they set them loose in the opera house, and then they dove down and and identified the murderer towards the end of the film. Okay. Um, that, that film is, is definitely, um, I like that film a lot more than, um, than Matt does. And I don't know if it's just because this, this kind of segments into our next topic, but it may have to do with the fact that I have more of a childhood connection to that film than, um, than Matt does. But, um, yeah. Anyway, so just to just to finish up, I really enjoyed watching Strange Vice um, with all the twists and um, all the different you know scenes of tension and um, just how they kind of subtly give you some clues as to what's going on, but they don't really tell you. And it's it's not until you go through the film a second time uh, or a third time that you catch them all. Right. And um, we may talk about this in more detail when we get into Black Veil because there's a lot of those in Black Veil that I didn't catch the first time through at all. Okay. Um, and, and it may be just because I'm stupid and I don't, I'm not observant. talked about Argento last time we talked about putting out a poll to find out you know what was it that got people interested in Argento in the first place like what was your breakthrough film Um, and we got a lot of answers I posted it on both of the Facebook groups and also on Reddit but I'm going to save the results for that until Matt is back because it was Matt's suggestion Um, so instead real quick I don't know how real quick it'll be but there was a topic posted by Morgan Jacob on the Jalo Holics page, and he writes to the older Jalo fans, 
What was it like being a Jalo fan before the days of boutique labels and easily accessible releases? And this obviously struck a chord with most of the people on this group because we're all kind of older. Um, there were like 88 comments to this post, um, including my own. So I thought it was an interesting topic. And um, Al, you and I talked a little bit about how you got into Jalo. I think the first time we recorded and I never really um, put it into um, I didn't I didn't keep the details in for the first podcast we did. So do you you don't really have like a a background of seeking out um, hard to find Jolly like Americans do, right? Well, not for home video collection, like I think the the question is referring to. I, right. I discovered Jolly when I moved to Italy when I was 12 years old and they were showing them on late night TV and being a 12 year old, you can imagine what would interest <laughs> me in <laughs> right. uh, sneaking into the living room late at night and watching these films with the volume turned all the way down and trying not to get caught. Um, <laughs> so I, I would watch them on TV, and at the time, there was one night when my aunt caught me, and she said, oh, you like these scary films, and she started taking me to the theater to see them, and wow. this was from 82 to 84, almost 85, so I would watch the ones from the 70s on late night TV when I could, and from time to time, she would take me to the cinema to see them as they were coming out. And that's how I saw things like uh, A Blade in the Dark and Tenebre and oh, wow. a couple others that I can't remember off the top of my head. And then we moved back to the States and nobody knew what Jolly were. They had no idea who Edwige Fenech was or Barbara Boucher. And I just kind of forgot about them until I moved back here in 2010 and they were still showing them on tv wow so and that was right around the time that the the boutique labels and uh well i guess some of the not so boutique labels were starting to put them out on video so i right. my jollo dvd collection just started maybe seven or eight years ago i never had to do the hunting down bootlegs of you know fourth generation dubbed vhs tapes uh, right. <laughs> I just I wasn't uh, thinking about Jolly at that time. And if I was, I it probably would have driven me nuts to just send money to some address in the back of a magazine <laughs> and cross my fingers and hope I get something back that is watchable. Yeah. So I, right. I kind of missed out on all that. But that's kind of interesting. So like when when I'm envisioning what life was like for you in this particular set up um i had a couple of questions the first one if you saw tenebrae in the theater when it was released was that <clears throat> an edited version or do you remember whether it had like you know that one scene where the, the 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 woman with the red shoes gets her arm chopped off and she sprays blood everywhere was that in the version you saw oh yeah yeah okay so they for whatever reason when they censored that film f for the u.s i guess it was specifically for u.s censors maybe um in order to get 
I mean, I, I don't really, I don't know the history of that film in the United States. I don't know if it was played in theaters, but it came out on a cassette called Unsane. Right, yeah. And there were a lot of, um, there were a lot of cuts and edits. Some of them were for gore, but some of them were for time. Like the scene where they have that gyroscope camera and it takes this continuous shot from the one apartment window and it goes up and it goes over the roof and it comes back down the other side. Right. I think they, they cut a bunch of that out just for runtime. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the other thing is the ones that they play on TV, like obviously later at night, um, is it a cross section of a whole bunch of different Italian films from that time period? Or is it always like some sort of mystery type giallo type film well during what we would call prime time they were showing all sorts of italian films from all the way from the 50s up until the current time which was the early 80s uh i discovered jolly because my cousins informed me that after about 10 or 11 at night they would start they would show nudity on TV <laughs> and before the internet and really before I think we didn't even own a VCR at, at the time yet right uh, I discovered the the Italian sex comedies of the 70s that they were showing on late night TV and that was how I discovered Edwige Fenech and right. scouring through the TV guide to see what late night Edwige Fenech film is coming on next I stumbled onto <laughs> Jolly that way right and uh there's a little less nudity than the sex comedies, but there's a lot more blood and gore and mystery. And, uh, right. So that was how I discovered those. But during the, the, you know, the, the family time part of the evening, they would show all sorts of things. Like, uh, the first time I ever saw Fellini's eight and a half was on a Saturday afternoon, just on regular daytime TV. Oh, that's pretty cool. Now, do they still do that? today like in 2022 or is it different now i think they do now we have a lot more channels now back then we had we had the three state run channels and they were just starting to open up to private broadcasters so there were maybe three or four other channels now we have probably maybe 60 channels on the they call it the uh Antenna Digitale Terrestre, which is terrestrial digital antenna. Okay. And that also has like radio stations and things, you know, towards the back end of it. But they have channels that are dedicated to showing films. Um, and there are a couple channels that are dedicated to Jalo, but they show stuff like Law and Order episodes. Right. Right. Um, I really don't watch a whole lot of Italian TV since I've moved here because I just, I don't have time to, you know, I'll find old films that, you know, uh, like Jolly and stuff that I haven't seen and I'll watch those. Or if I'm interested in a TV show, I'll just binge it on Netflix or something. Right. But, uh, well that, that seems to be like the way of, you know, modern um, the modern kind of mindset of TV watching is on-demand TV watching. Like, I'm not going to... Like, appointment television really doesn't happen anymore unless it's a sporting event. Yeah. Um, so, 
I think that's the way things are going now. But um, yeah, that's that's really um, kind of cool. That's it's a very it's a very um, unique take, and I'm sure that you're not the only one that had um, an introduction to Jalo films in that way. But for I guess I don't know if it's the rest of the world, quote unquote, but definitely for Americans, if you're interested in Jalo in this particular time period. Um, you're either an old person like me or Matt um, who've been watching these for a while and now we're just so happy to be able to see them and have them be as so easily accessible. Or you're new uh, because you've heard the old people talk about this stuff and you're you're kind of catching up. And I, I know that um, I've seen a lot of people post uh, in various social networks about, you know, what would you recommend and um, what other giallos are like this one or mm-hmm. what have you. So there's lots of people that are kind of just um, ramping up and starting to watch these for the first time, which is kind of cool. But, yeah, I mean, I won't go into a huge amount of, of, of history that I have, but when I was thinking back how to answer this question that was posted on the Facebook page, it all goes back to specifically my obsession with obtaining Argento films um, because I was trying to remember if there were any other Jalo films from when I was between the ages of say, I don't know, 13 and 25 that I hunted for or searched for besides Argento films. And, you know, we've talked about this ad nauseum, but Argento is like the, the, the gateway drug into Jalo because Suspiria was considered to be like a breakout um, legendary film for ho- for horror people, and because it was so hard to obtain, you know the the, um, the 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 magazines and the fanzines in the United States would always just kind of bump it up as the ultimate, you know, horror director horror experience, mm-hmm. and it kind of there was all this myster- mystery and um, you know just hype, I guess, that surrounded you know, Argento films because no one had really seen them. They were just going on um, what people had written about them. And, you know, when you're trying to write a review, if you, if you want people to read your review, you you may decide to embellish or just, you know, bump up um, your opinion of it because, you know, when you say this is, you know, one of the best films ever made and people notice that you've written that and they want to know more, you know, even though you may not even think that as the, as the reviewer. Um, well, you wouldn't really have easy. to back it up if nobody can get a hold of it. <laughs> right. Well, that's true. Exactly. But I mean, I've noticed that even in me, in, in my writing of reviews of Jalo films for the website, um, that it's really easy to start talking about, you know, how this is the best film that, Lucio Fulci ever made and you know it's it's like you can't really say that unless you watch them all um and you you got as intimate with you know like Don't Torture a Duckling is Fulci's crowning achievement I think I may have written that at one point on my website you know mm-hmm. um and I don't know if that's really true because I'm not I didn't study Fulci and watch all of his films um but anyway um so there was a lot of hype around Argento, and I don't think I, I do remember that I had a VHS copy of a dub of A Lizard in a Woman's Skin. Um that I had gotten so so for me it was 
trying to find them in the video rental stores. Um, and then later on, I would go to horror movie conventions and people would either have, you know, foreign copies that they brought in to sell or they had dupes of films that were available to buy. So I would get them that way. Um, and then there was those those duplication catalogs. So for for people who don't remember this or people who never knew about this in the United States, there was a loophole in the copyright laws that said if the version of the film that you are copying and selling to other people was never released in the United States, it is not illegal. So, um, you know, if you had, let's say, an uncut copy of Tenebrae in 19, you know, in the late 90s that you could copy onto video cassette, it was perfectly legal to sell it because the only version that had ever come out in the United States was the Unsane and it has a different running time and, um, and has a different title and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so these duplication companies made some money by importing laser discs and bringing in VHS and beta versions of, of films. I guess there was, there was beta probably um, from the international marketplace and then just putting them into a catalog saying, hey, we've got this and this and this. I think the biggest um, holy grail back then was Four Flies on Grey Velvet because um, that was a paramount uh, distribution in the United States, I think. And Paramount had basically just locked the rights up to that film for some reason. I don't think anybody really knows why. Um, But it basically meant that you were never, ever going to see a copy of that uh, in the United States. And so I think there was a French version that had been released with English language. And that was the one that, you know, you could get if you went to the to the distributors or or to the duplication services. but then uh, I got into Laserdiscs and being able to get copies of um, these films on Laserdisc. Um, primarily, they were Japanese, um, but people were selling them on eBay. Um, and this was after DVDs came out. So it was like um, people weren't interested in Laserdiscs anymore, which is, which is a blessing and a curse if you were interested in them. Because there were a lot of places where you could find them for super cheap because people are giving them away. Like when vinyl went out of style for a little while. Um, but the players were hard to find. And, you know, you, you couldn't find a new one because they weren't making them anymore. Uh, I had this Pioneer Laserdisc player that also had a, a separate tray that would come out that you could put DVDs on. And it played both formats. Hmm. Um, and it was really cool. And um, I don't know what happened to it. It got lost in one of my moves. I still have the laser discs, but um, I just remember getting a copy of cat and nine tails. And it was the first time I had ever seen it like letterboxed in its full scope. And the laser disc um, video quality was way better than VHS, especially if it was dubbed over a few times. Um, so that was when I really kind of, it, when it really clicked for me that the Jala was more than just, a scary story with some gore. Like there were, there were things to like look at in, in the visual aspect of the film that were just eye catching and artistic and beautiful. Um, and just, um, 
the opening scene with uh, Carl Malden and um, the little girl walking down the street and the way that they film that and the way that they frame things and um, Morricone's score playing in the background, just it's kind of all melds into this memory that I have. And every time I sit down and watch that film, I, I kind of get flashbacks to that feeling. Um, so, uh, yeah. But, I mean... <sighs> That that's kind of it. I didn't really I didn't really go on the hunt for Jalo films as much as I went on the hunt for Argento films. Because once I realized, hey, I need to branch out and watch other Jalo films other than Argento, um, it was when the Anchor Bay Studio started releasing Jalos uh, on Jolly uh, on DVD. So their first release, I can't remember how long ago it was, was a was a four set of DVDs that. Uh, what was in there? Let's see. Um, if I can remember, um, Short Night of Glass Dolls was in that. Uh, Bloodstained Shadow, that was the second one. Um, Case of the Bloody Iris was the third one. And there was one other one in that set, and I can't remember what it is now. Hmm. Um, oh, uh, Who Saw Her Die was the fourth one. Um, and like those, if you if you know those films, they kind of run the gamut of all different kinds of flavors of giallo. Um, Case of the Bloody Iris is just a, a typical uh, classic style, you know, killers on the loose thing. Um, Who saw her die is kind of like that, but a little bit more um, serious because it's like you know this the kid was killed, and you know it's not it's not as kind of like swinging sixties and kind of tongue in cheek as. The one with Edwidge is. Yeah, it's, it's and not then, as fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then uh, Short Night was more like a... Uh, is more of a flashback um, kind of mystery film. The guy wakes up and he's alive, but they think he's dead and he's on the... He's in the morgue. Mm-hmm. And he tries to piece together um, his, his what happened and how he got there and it's told with flashbacks. Um, and then the bloodstained shadow was, um, was a late jolly. Uh, I'm sorry, a late jollo from like 78, maybe, um, which was kind of a slasher kind of a deal too. But at any rate, um, yeah, by then the DVDs were coming out and that's kind of where it ended for me. I didn't really have to go look for them anymore. And then with the advent of the internet and being able to download films from various places um, instead of having to find them on DVD, um, that kind of opened up everything. And now, you know, you can find a lot of Jalo films on YouTube. Um, and recently we've been talking about this channel called Tubi, uh, which is a free movie channel on I mean, I found it on Roku because I have a Roku TV, but I'm sure that you can find it if you have a Fire TV or if you use uh, Google Smart TV. Mm-hmm. Um, it's T-U-B-I, and it's free. I don't know internationally if it's all the same, but I found at least 15 to 20 Jolly on that channel. Um, so it's 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 pretty awesome that you can go there and, and uh, have a... A huge amount of uh, opportunities to watch these films without having to do much work. <laughs> and uh, it's a great time to be a Jalo fan right now. Yeah. <laughs> or any kind of, um, 
70s European cinema. I listen a lot to the Nashy cast, which is a podcast based on the, the career of the Spanish actor and director Paul Nashy. And they say the same right. thing over there. I mean, there are new Blu-rays of his stuff coming out. And just 10 or 15 years ago, you couldn't find even a cheapo DVD copy of it. Right. And uh, so it's all booming. And I I just really appreciate how easy it is. And I'm kind of glad in a way that I missed out on the hunting down bootlegs <laughs> part of uh, a lot of people's experience. Yeah. I mean, it, it was fun in a way because you were kind of on a treasure hunt. And when you found something, it was like it was it was really like the payoff was, you know, a little bit more emotional because you spent so much effort. Right. Yeah. Um, but of course, that could also like backfire on you because you finally got a copy of, you know, um, Five Days in Milan <laughs> by Argento. And then you go to watch it. and You're like, what the fuck am I watching? Uh, <laughs> Somebody get killed already. <laughs> And I don't think I even went through that because the, the the copy I had was um, didn't even have subtitles, so oh, I didn't know what great. I was watching. Yeah. So, but that's interesting, Al. The Nashy cast. So, has Paul Nashy been in so many films that they could have a podcast dedicated to just this one actor? Uh, well, I think. Well, let me check here. On his IMDb, he has a lot of credits. Um, his career started in, I think, the, the mid to late 60s. Right. And he was just like a, a bit actor. He had been a bodybuilder, so he was used as a, um, like a, just an extra in a lot of scenes where they needed some tough guy scowling in the background. Okay. And then he, uh, he had been in love with, the uh, the universal horror films, especially werewolves or the Wolfman, right? So uh, after well, pretty quickly, because I think his first werewolf film came out in the late sixties, like sixty nine. Uh, he kind of became the uh, the Spanish werewolf guy for a long time, and he did a lot of werewolf films. His okay. last film, uh, I think he did the voice for. Uh, a character in a animated or claymation type short film that somebody did, but his oh, cool. his last film credit uh, before he died, I think, was 2012. He had a very long career, and he did all sorts of uh, films. He did comedies and uh, like spy type thrillers, uh, crime stories, um, all sorts of crazy horror films. Uh, he did one that was uh, something, uh, the werewolf versus uh, Dr. Jekyll. So, <laughs> so he would do these crazy mashups. And, right. Uh, they were really interesting. But a lot of his films, like The Jolly, they just hadn't been available, especially to people in the States. I guess if you lived in Spain, you could catch right. them on TV from time to time. Uh, so if you listen to the Nashi cast over the years, they're complaining about how they've heard of this one movie, but nobody has it. Or they found a crappy uh, TV rip, but it's not subtitled. 
And then fast forward a few years later and Mondo Macabro is putting out a Blu-ray of it and they (laughs) get to do the commentary for it. So that's kind of cool. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Because they have the clout at this point. You know? Yeah. And, uh, the whole experience that they're having with Nashi films very closely parallels, uh, what a Jalo fan would be going through at the same time. Right. I mean, they talk about yep. ordering bootlegs from the back of uh, those, I don't know, those uh, video zines or whatever it was in the 90s. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So well, That's pretty cool. Now, um, we did cover two Nashi films on this podcast. One was Dragonfly for Each Corpse, and the other mm-hmm. one was Blue Eyes of a Broken Doll. Yeah, Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll was how I discovered Nashi, because it was okay. listed as a Jalo. And right. when I went to to find out more about it, I saw it on a list of like the best Jalo films. And on IMDb, I saw that it was from Spain. <laughs> right. I kind of turned my nose up. I was like, oh, come on, a Spanish <laughs> Jalo. But just out of curiosity and not having anything else new to watch, I downloaded it and watched it. And I was pretty impressed and that led me to the nashi cast because you know like with you guys you know here's this film i want to hear somebody talk about it right uh, that's how i discovered chow chow and blue eyes of the broken doll is how i discovered the nashi cast and that kind of sent me off in another little niche 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 bunny trail for film you know it, oh, that's pretty cool well, and it's interesting how, you know, everybody copies off everybody else because a dragonfly for each corpse and blue eyes of a broken doll, it just, the titles of these films just follow that formula that, you know, was kind of established in the early 70s for Jalo films. And then there was a third one that I have never seen called Seven Murders for Scotland Yard mm-hmm. um, with Paul Nashi. And this looks like uh, it was also a... Um, Spanish production. The director is from Spain. Yeah. For this film. So, um, have you seen that one? Is that good? I don't think I've seen it, but I've heard their podcast about it. And if I remember correctly, it's basically a Jack the Ripper story. Okay. Well, I'm not sure. Well, that make yeah, that would make sense, right? Because Scotland Yard. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it just seems like the more you talk about these types of films, there there are more, you know you uncover more films that you never saw before. And it's just like, it's like a treasure trove of, of stuff. Without further ado, today we're going to talk about the 1968 film, A Black Veil for Lisa. We're 
going to go through the scene by scene, but first, Al, why don't you give us some production notes and credits and whatnot and give us an intro. Okay. A Black Veil for Lisa was a German-Italian co-production, and it seems like at least the exteriors were mainly shot in and around Hamburg, Germany. Uh, the working title for the film was Blind Alley, which doesn't make too much sense with the movie. I mean, there are a couple scenes in alleys, but uh, in the German title was The Secret of a Young Widow, and they tried to tie it into the Edgar Wallace films at the time. I'm not sure if Edgar Wallace had much to do with the writing of it. The Italian title is a little more interesting. The Italian title was La Morte Non Ha Sesso, which means death does not have sex. And that could mean sex in the sense of actual boinking, or it could be taken as sex as in gender, which would imply right. maybe there's a killer who's actually a woman. Uh, that title doesn't make a whole lot of sense uh, compared to what happens in the film, but it's uh, it's a little more intriguing than The Secret of the Young Widow. So uh, apparently the English version had different music, and was edited by a different editing team. Hmm. Uh, the director is Massimo Dallamano, who Jalo fans might remember from the Who Has Done Whatever to All Them Girls series of films. <laughs> uh, the cast includes uh, an older actor at the time, John Mills. He had 129 credits from 1932 until 2005. Wow. Probably the, the best known would be the Disney film Swiss Family Robinson. I think he played Papa Robinson in that one. Hmm. Uh, he played in a few episodes of a British uh, Professor Quatermass TV series. Uh, I don't know. Some people might have seen the Hammer Quatermass films. I think there were three of them. Hmm. Uh, in 1971, he won the Best Supporting Actors Oscar for Ryan's Daughter which I've never heard of. In 1976, huh. he was knighted. So uh, he's Sir John Mills. And in uh, 1979, he got a Love Boat episode. So if you're an aging actor in the 70s and couldn't get a spot on the yeah. Love Boat, call Queen Elizabeth. She can help you out. <laughs> That's how you know you've really made it. Yeah. You get a Love Boat episode. Now that I'm, Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if the credits for his episode said Sir John Mills. Or, oh, man. Uh, okay. Uh, one of the main characters is Max, played by Robert Hoffman, who we already said was in the other film we're going to cover pretty soon, Carnal Circuit. Uh, his credits include Knights and Loves of Don Juan, 1971, with Barbara Boucher. So it sounds like that's going on my list my favorite uh dance steps on the razor's edge in 1973 with susan scott and naked girl murdered in the park 1972 which i haven't seen or recognized anybody else from uh mm. the woman that he co-stars with also in carnal circuit is luciana paluzzi she was a little a couple years after this film she was a bond girl in thunderball and she was in Two Faces of Fear in 1972 with George Hilton and Anita oh. Strindberg. 
I forgot about that. She in '69, uh, she did "99 Women" by Jess Franco with Rosalbaneri. So hmm. that, there's another one for the list. That's one for my list. Yeah. She was in <laughs> the Italian Connection, a Polizio Tesco from 1972. I think that one was directed by Ferdinando Di Leo, who's kind of the, the king of Italian crime drama. And mm. her co-stars in that were Femi Benussi and Silvia Koshina. So there's six reasons to watch that one. <laughs> she was... <laughs> she was... but um bum she was also in a six million dollar man TV movie that came out in seventy three, and she was on an episode of the new Dick Van Dyke show in seventy three. Huh. So her career was wow. not just limited to Europe. Uh, one of the bit and I oh, go ahead. What I the one thing I just want to uh, warn everybody: if you've never, if you don't know anything about Luciana Paluzzi, do not Google her because the first image that comes up is what she looks like now. And it will kill any kind of idea that you might have about the way that she looked back then. So um, (laughs) she was she was absolutely gorgeous in, you know, the 60s and 70s and maybe even, you know, the 80s, too. But she didn't age well. I don't know. Is she still alive? I don't know. She may have died already. But the first picture that comes up when I do an image search for her in Google is one where she was, you know, an older woman and not to say anything bad about people who age, but if you're trying to kind of um, build up this fantasy about this particular actress and this character, and then you see uh, that photo, it'll be like, want, want. So, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I see, I see you tried. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm typing as fast <laughs> as I can. Uh, okay. Let's see if she's still anyway, around. Sorry to interrupt. Well, I did notice that. I guess the uh, because I'm in Italy, I guess where more people are Googling her than over there. Uh, I got a different order of images that came up. It looks like she's still alive. There's no death date for her on IMDb. But uh, she probably jumped into my top five Jalo ladies of all time. And I've only seen two of her movies, and they were both in the last month. So... Uh, I'd call myself a fan. Uh, one of the I, I'm not I'm not a fan of her open mouth smile. I think she has like a tooth issue. Like a her teeth aren't exactly as straight as you would like them to be, and it looks like she's got some sort of fangs going on. Yeah. <laughs> Other than that, it's kind of predatory <laughs> I, looking. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the pictures I've see, I'm seeing of her in all leather on a motorcycle are just fantastic oh yeah anyway okay uh one of the bit parts in this film uh she she plays one of the girls brought in to the police department and she's interrogated by our main character played by john mills uh her name in the film is marianne but she's played by an actress named renata kashe and she was Mm -hmm. in lady frankenstein 1971 with rosalba neri and in 73, she was in She Devils of the SS. Ah. And from what I gathered from her IMDb page, her uh, filmography is a little more, uh, let's say, liberal <laughs> than her role in this film. So if, uh, if, she, I see. if she caught your eye, 
there's uh, somebody you can hunt down. <laughs> and that's all I got for the production. Okay. Cool. Um, important information probably to you know, to note now that we'll probably revisit is that at the time that this was filmed, John Mills was 60 and Luciana Paluzzi was 31. And um, when you watch the film, it, it's, I mean, I, th- I, I think that they casted this correctly because they were trying to um, create this idea that these two people were married, but um, it wasn't necessarily a conventional relationship or you know, one that you would expect. Yeah, their, um, their age difference provides most of the drama, I would say. Right. So I do have the Jalo score, but we can get into that at the end. Um, so for anybody who, and, and <laughs> I, I hate that we have to talk about this every single time. I don't know why. I think I, I, I owe it to the people that are listening to say, you know, if you haven't watched this film, um, you probably shouldn't listen to the rest of this podcast. This podcast is is really geared for people who have already seen the film and want to hear, you know, details about what what we noticed and what we think about the film. Um, if you haven't watched the film and you're interested in seeing it, or if you're interested in seeing it again and you don't have a copy, there is a copy on YouTube under the uh, channel of Cine Macabre. And it's C-I-N-E with a with an accent over the E and M-A-C-A-B-R-E. I'll put a link in the show notes to that. And it is uh, the same copy I think I watched, um, which was a Blu-ray transfer. So it's in high def. And um, I don't know how long it will stay up there. I mean, right now it's got close to 4,000 views. Um, and... I also don't know what the algorithm is for YouTube to decide that they should take something down or not. I tried putting a couple of Jalo films up on a private YouTube channel that was, you know, just so that I could get uh, Matt to watch something without having to download a large file. And when we did it for um, a hyena in a safe, there was no issue. And when I tried doing it for, I think, Double Face, it was killed immediately for copyright um and so it doesn't matter whether or not it's a private link that no one can access unless you invite them um somehow youtube you know goes through these films and has some sort of artificial intelligence that looks for things that it can flag um so the point is i don't know how long a black veil for lisa will be on this particular youtube channel but um Try the link if you don't have any other copy of this, uh, if you want to watch it. Um, the version that I have was released by Olive Films on Blu-ray. I think there's two Blu-rays of this. One's from 88 Films and one's from Olive Films. And I think it's the same exact print. So I don't know if one is available overseas and the other one isn't, but whatever. Um, but again, uh, there's a YouTube copy of it as well. So... Um, from the opening, um, we have this point of view uh, from a hole in the ground at a funeral. Um, we see the coffin brought over, uh, placed on its braces, and then we switch to um, a shot above the ground where a, a huge bouquet of yellow tulips is laid on the coffin. 
Um, there's at least six different clergy type people here um, in like very puritanical looking outfits um, praying in Latin. Church bells are ringing. And then we see this black veiled woman at the head of the coffin. Um, and the coffin goes down. We get a close up of this woman's face. There's a single tear in her eye and we freeze and they play. Um, I think it's the main theme. It's it, the, the music that pl is played right at that moment. Isn't, uh, isn't like a, you know, the kind of theme that you would um, attribute to a character It's more like a suspenseful kind of opening scene theme, I guess. Um, and then you hear someone whisper the word Lisa. Um, and as the credits continue to con continue to roll, um, we switch from this scene. I think it fades, it blurs on her face, and then um, we we fade into um, this outdoor scene. The camera is panning around um, this tavern. You can hear like this German kind of reminds me of Oktoberfest music playing. Um, there's a bunch of people sitting inside the tavern drinking. And then we focus in on this man with a brown jacket sitting at the bar. Uh, he's taking shots. And then we see this black leather jacket figure kind of pass across the frame outside of the tavern. Um, and let's see. Um, this goes back and forth a couple of times. We, we eventually see that this figure has black gloves on, has a black jacket on. And the figure has this silver object in their hand, and it's flipping it over. Um, eventually, the brown jacket man leaves the bar. Um, he's kind of staggering. He's had too much to drink, obviously. Um, then we get another close-up of that hand with the uh, silver object. And then we see this uh, wide shot of the man who's left the bar, like a couple of flights of steps up in the outdoor town area and the kind of mysterious figure in the foreground deciding to like close in eventually he he uh he walks up to where this uh man from the bar is um it's not holding the uh the silver object anymore now he's holding a switchblade um you can see he's also wearing a, a fedora or like a black hat um and no longer do we have the um, German kind of party music. We have the suspenseful kind of um, soundtrack music playing. And we hear a scream. Um, now we see that the blade has a bunch of blood on it. Um, the figure drops the blade. He takes off this jacket. Uh, he drops the jacket and the hat and the gloves next to the body and walks away. And... That's our opening scene. Um, we don't know very much, obviously, but it's just a very uh, well-filmed, well-designed um, opening murder sequence. Um, what did okay. you think about all of that, Al? Well, it was uh, a typical suspense murder type intro. What struck me was later we find out that the, the guy that did the killing or the killer was a professional assassin and it seemed to me pretty unprofessional to have the guy scream out in the middle of the night like that 
and and then he drops everything right there and I'll bring that up again later in a, a scene down the road but if you have if you're going to kill him with a switchblade cuz you know you don't want to have a loud gunshot don't wake anybody up go up behind right. the guy and slit his throat or stab him in the neck or strangle him you know but he just stabs him the guy screams and we don't even see anybody's uh, porch light turn on or anything that you would expect <laughs> right so i'm not sure about this professional killer that we're introduced <laughs> to here well it it will be revealed later that he's not the brightest bulb in the uh oh in the batch yeah that's for sure um <laughs> um I don't know if there's anything else I wanted to say about that scene, but it was pretty cool. Um, the one thing that I, I forgot to mention before we started is that um, when I did the scene-by-scene uh, scene notes for this podcast, it was my third time through the film. Okay. And the first time through the film, I watched it just to watch it. Uh, second time through the film, I watched it in order to do the Jalo score and to write a review for the website. And after two times through and if you go to the jalloscore.com website and read my review of it I don't give it a very good um, review and I thought maybe in doing this for the show and going through it a third time with a fine tooth comb um, we may have this third times the charm situation happening and I'm going to suspend um, whether that's true or not until we get to the end but um, I just wanted to throw that out there that this is my my third time watching this. Um, anyway, so we switch, the police arrive. Um, I immediately notice that the driver is driving on the left side of the car. And I use that to figure out where we are, um, in the world. Um, because if they're on the right hand side, it's various other places in Europe. Um, anyway, uh, they release the name of the victim or they say the name of the victim's name's Willie Zoll. Um, and we also first get a glimpse of our main character, whose name is Bulof. Um, and I think it's B-U-L-O-F-F or B-U-L-O-V. I'm not sure which. Um, now, in, in and did you have subtitles with this also? I, I didn't watch. If, if there were any, I didn't turn them on. So Okay. I had the subtitles on, and every time the guy or anybody says Bulof, the subtitle said Bulon. With an right. N instead of a V. Yep. So, uh, and I think that's his character credit in IMDb as well. So yeah, well, they, yeah. So, right. which is weird. I mean, I see that a lot um, in these international films where they they say one thing and they they spell it a different way. Right. Um. But um. Yeah, and his first name is Franz, but we really don't ever hear his first name used very much. Um, it's always Bulov. So right. So this is supposed um, to this is taking place in Hamburg, Germany, and the police cars say Polizei, which is German, and uh, there are signs above archways that are all in German. Everybody that we've seen speaking so far in this police scene when they arrive at the the murdered guy, they all have German accents except for Bulov, right. which. Bulov, as far as I know, is more of an Eastern European type of name, like Russian or Ukrainian. Right. His name is Franz, which sounds pretty damn German. But he's right. the only person in the scene with a British accent. 
So at this point, I was wondering, what the hell is going on? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, If you're going to dub it, why not just dub everybody with a British accent? And how come some people have French accents? and I mean, not French, uh, German accents, and some people have British accents. Uh, This guy has a Russian name, but he also has a German name, but he has a British accent. And (laughs) I, I think it gets explained very shortly. For the first time I saw this, I I just rolled my eyes at the casting and the direction. Oh, okay. Well, if you, uh, I, I don't really know that if it gets explained, I didn't, I didn't catch that, but it, it, you know, obviously from a production standpoint, they probably wanted um, John Mills to dub his own voice. Um, and I, I'm assuming that that is his voice. Yeah. Um, and the other characters, you know, who knows, you know, what they really sounded like um, on the actual, you know, filming stage. Yeah. Um, but we get um, we get a bunch of names thrown at us right away. So we know that Willie Zoll is the name of the victim. Mm-hmm. We know that the main inspector, his name is Buloff. They refer to that they were trying to get information on somebody named Shurman, uh from Willie Zoll. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was killed before they could get the information. They also mentioned somebody named Kaufman and Reinhardt, who are also victims who have been bumped off because they were witnesses, we we're to assume. Um, and they were commissioner both arrives right before Buloff could talk to them also. Right, exactly. Okay. So somehow Buloff is kind of always one step behind, and when the commissioner shows up, um, you can tell that... Uh, He's not happy with Buloff. Like, it's like, how many times are we going to have an opportunity to catch this guy and you're going to screw it up? <laughs> um, and so Buloff is like, look, uh, you know, I'll figure this out. Don't worry about it. And the commissioner splits. Um, and one of the other cops, and I didn't pay attention to the names of the other cops because I think they were, you know, they're, they're kind of thrown, thrown out here and there, but I don't have them written down. Um but one of the cops says, hey, there's a witness in the bar. Um, he's going to give some evidence. But Buloff is like, nah, I'm going to go call my wife on the payphone and see if she's home. Um, <laughs> a, and the other two cops are like, Who? a recurring theme. Absolutely. <laughs> um, in the in this, like in the second scene of the movie, we see, you know, uh, how paranoid uh, our main character is. Um, and even the cops know, like they're like, you know, who did he go to call? And the other one is like, well. Who do you think? His wife, obviously. <laughs> um, so we leave that scene and we go to Buloff's home. Uh, he enters the bedroom um, and we get this very quick, amazing cleavage shot from our female character as she she spins around um, to turn on the light as Buloff opens the door. And I freeze framed it, and I may put it up as the, the uh, I may put it up as the image for for the for the Jalo page. Well, wasn't uh, that one on of the Facebook. pictures on the the IMDb page? I, it may have been. Um, All I know is when I saw it, I was like, I need to pause this. Hang on. Yeah, it's um, like the four. Whoops. It's like the sixth picture on the little uh, camera roll on the IMDb page. Oh, really? Yeah. And, uh, hey, it's almost wallpaper size. If you got a decent monitor. Yeah. Well, there's something to do. 
<laughs> yeah, she's a she's yeah, a healthy well, lady. That that uh, that was I mean that was worth the price of admission for me, uh, especially since in this new day and age we can freeze frame things. Um, yeah. So uh, I think we are supposed to connect this person who we're seeing for the first time with the woman under the black veil in the in the opening scene. Um, they fight. Bulov accuses her of lying when she said she didn't hear the phone ring. Um, we notice, I mean, if we haven't already, we notice that they are way, they have a huge age gap. Mm-hmm. Um, she fights with him. He leaves. He pours himself a scotch. Um, then all of a sudden she turns around. She's got this like angelic looking nightgown. She's standing in the doorway. She asks him if he's still mad, and it looks like they probably have some sort of relation. But again, it's not something that I care to picture in my mind, um, simply because of John Mills and how old he is. Okay, and about we also the, notice later the in the film that they about yeah about the scotch. Did you notice? It wasn't just any scotch, right? Oh no, it was a J and B bottle, and it was yeah. It was Very, like the largest J and B bottle I've ever seen. <laughs> yes, and it was quite um, front and center. Yeah, with the label. Yeah, and he probably goes through one of those every couple of days, judging from his uh, behavior for the rest of this film and how uptight he is well, about and, having this wife. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, you know, every night I would probably down half that bottle dealing with. You know, trying to to make sense of you know this woman and and what she's up to and all of the shit she puts me through. But yeah, um, I I don't I don't have any um, sort of personal <laughs> attachments to that at all. I promise. Um, <laughs> but uh, question that I have for the Europeans in general, and maybe again, this is a nineteen sixties and seventies thing, and it's not normal in the modern day times but um most of the time when i watch these films and they're having scotch especially uh specifically j and b but for the most part we know it's whiskey they drink them out of these tall highball glasses and you know they pour what i would consider to be like three inches of scotch um which probably isn't the same Amount if you poured three inches into an old fashioned glass or into, you know, your typical whiskey glass. So is that um, something that people still do? Do people still drink scotch in those tall glasses in, in Europe? I have no know? idea. No. Mm. Um, I go to the bar, well, what we call a bar, which is kind of like a bar slash cafe, uh, right. a few times a week. And I never see people drinking like straight hard liquor. Usually they'll have some kind of uh, mixed drink. Like around here, right. it's very popular to drink a spritz, which is okay. uh, like Aperol and sparkling wine or Prosecco, which is like Italian okay. champagne. And yes. those come in completely different types of glasses. Uh, and the, But they're kind of like refreshing drinks, right? Like... Yeah, if, yeah. If you need a scotch, it's you're not you're not drinking it to be refreshed. You're drinking it because you have a wife that you know <laughs> is 
is is never home and she has giant boobs but who's driving you crazy with uh, paranoia <laughs> well, and along those lines the very beginning of the film shows you the the logo for the production company did you see, yes. get that and it's commonwealth united corporation or something like that but when the the logo comes together it's c-u-c which uh, <laughs> could be pronounced yeah. cuck and right. this yeah that's kind of a spoiler for the whole rest of the film <laughs> <laughs> well yeah absolutely and you know um you don't need to be into it to be a cuckold so like oh yeah, you know, yeah. john mills john mills character is certainly not happy about what lisa is up to but he may still fall into that category, but that's kind of... Well, I think I the, think I the original meaning that. of that word never had anything to do with uh, being into it. Right. Uh, like, yeah, know, it became it, a fetish. It got warped later. But in, yeah, in all fairness exactly. to uh, beautiful Lisa here, at this point, and for a good part of the film, we're not sure if she's actually up to anything or if she's completely right. innocent and he's just being paranoid. Right. Uh, so it's kind of hard to pick a side in this, uh, you know, this marriage yeah. battle that they have going on. So, oh, especially in the beginning of the film. And, you know, you, you kind of get the idea that, you know, uh, pretty early on that Bulov has got this kind of problem because he's spending so much energy trying to figure out, you know, if he's if his paranoia is uh, warranted or not, but he's also got this high profile case that he keeps fucking up. Yeah. So his third um, witness in a row just got murdered and his <laughs> boss just chewed him out. And one thing I loved about that scene where the commissioner is chewing him out for, you know, his third witness being murdered, the commissioner <laughs> didn't even get out of the car. He just rolled the window right. down and said, Hey, you're screwing up quick. You know, get your shit together. <laughs> what a power play is that? Right. <laughs> Yeah, because in American films, the guy would have gotten out and paced back and forth and waved his arms a few times and pointed a finger yeah. two inches in front of his nose or something. And <laughs> this guy's just like, I'm not even getting out of the car. You know, you're fucked up, <laughs> right? Right. So, so this happens, and his first thought is, I need to call and check on my wife, make sure she's home. And yeah, come on, dude. Yeah. Yeah, he is like super preoccupied with this. And we'll find out later that there are other reasons for this, not just because he's paranoid. Yeah, yeah. They do make um, it a little more interesting. But, and we figure and it's it's pretty soon actually, because you know, we go we flash to the next day, um, after the love scene, if you want to call it that. Um it was mercifully and, cut. <laughs> yes, it was. Um we do see that um the interior of where we're going next is got a sign on the front that says Interpol International Narcotics Control Hamburg Division. So we know we're in Germany now we, for sure. Right, And the, the um, Interpol aspect is what made me think it's not that big a deal that one of them would be British because it oh, is an international right. police agency. So right. I would imagine they have people from different countries and different offices all over. But it doesn't explain his name being Franz Buloff. <laughs> right. The British accent. Yeah, Sir Franz Buloff of the, <laughs> the British realm. Yeah, okay. But 
So we, we see the commissioner again, and the commissioner's like, you know, what the fuck is your problem? And Buloff is already flashing over to some sort of fantasy that Lisa is with a lover um, while the commissioner is chewing him out again. The commissioner wants results. They have no leads. They don't have any info. Um, and then the commissioner mentions Buloff's wife, and Buloff gets very defensive, and he says, she's been cleared or I wouldn't have married her. And um, then he storms out. So we get right away, we get a little bit more info about Lisa. Um, At some point in the past, she was a suspect for some reason. And we, we know that um, Buloff is in charge of the narcotics division. So Mm -hmm. clearly this case that he's working on, she has a little bit more of a connection to it now than we previously knew. But again, we're, we're pretty early in the going. So they introduced that pretty much right away. And you can, you can kind of understand now a little bit more <clears throat> about the fact that there's another reason for him to be suspicious. Yeah, he's not just worried about her fidelity. He might be right. having ideas about her uh, involvement in this criminal thing that's going on. Right. And- I like how the the commissioner point blank asks him, what is wrong with you? And that is something that happens again and again throughout the whole film. Different people. And they use the word wrong. So it's it's like as a viewer, I'm starting to get the idea there's something wrong with this guy. (laughs) Now, is that a question from from a different language standpoint? I mean, what's wrong with you is kind of a... um, not a cliche, but it's kind of a colloquialism phrase in English. Is is there a, you know, is there a, a direct equivalent of what's wrong with you in other languages, like in Italian, or, you know, I mean, in Spanish it'd be like "qué es tu problema," right? Like, what's your problem? Yeah. In, well, in Italian, what is your problem would be "qual è tuo problema," "la tuo problema." Okay. But. The way they're saying here, like, you know, if you, you know, a friend of yours is looking dejected or something and you walk up and just say, hey, what's wrong? In Italian, you would say cosai, which is what do you have? Okay. Which is a completely different colloquialism, but they mean it to mean, you know, what do you have that's troubling you in an right. abbreviated form? Uh, in German, I don't really remember what it would have been. Uh but there is a point coming up where I think the, the German to English thing crosses lines. And I'll point that out. Okay. Uh, in, uh, but, but it's interesting, though, because um, what's wrong with you can be kind of said in two different ways. Like, hey, what's wrong with you? Or what's wrong? Like, I'm, I'm generally being compassionate about your situation. Or in an accusatory tone, like, what the fuck is wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Are you crazy? You know? Yeah. And I think that's what the commissioner is where where the commissioner's coming from he's yeah i think everywhere in this film that's where it's coming from yeah there's always one character being like what the fuck is your problem you know (laughs) but i did sense a little bit of um compassion from the commissioner standpoint like it's clear that um buloff has some respect at least with the commissioner Uh uh-huh and that's why they're having this discussion. It's like, hey, what's what's going on here? Like, you're usually a top-notch German, you know, Eastern European, Slavic 
UK detective. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway. And and the commissioner seems at least a decade or two younger than Bulaw. Yeah. And he's (laughs) he's stern, but he's not a jerk about it. You know, he he does seem kind of compassionate and he probably understands, you know, obviously this dude who's 60 something with a 30 year old Bond girl at home uh, (laughs) might have trouble focusing on shit for whatever. He's got some stress. Even when things are going good, he's not going to be paying a whole lot of attention to his work, but uh, he seems (laughs) to get it. (laughs) Ay, ay. Uh, but the commissioner, he kind of talks a little bit more slowly, and I don't know if that's just because of the way it was dubbed, but whatever. Um, so after that, Buloff walks into this other room where they've got film of the previous night's quote-unquote roundup, which I guess is, you know, every every pseudo-type criminal that they brought in for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> Buloff sees a man on the film that he refers to as the rabbit, who we'll see later. And then we see this young woman who was found at the roulette tables at Fritz's. Uh-huh. And we'll hear more about Fritz later. Um, uh, let's see. Forensics comes in. I think it's forensics um, to talk about the murder of Willie Zoll, but they have no leads. And while that's all happening and he's getting briefed, Buloff decides, Hey, I'm going to call my wife and see what's going on. Uh, and I want to make mention that behind him is a very detailed city map, which got a point on the Jalo score. Hey, there we go. Uh, yay! I thought so, it was interesting uh, when they when they were looking at the video of the 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 night's roundup. Yeah, he tells Kruger, "Okay, that's the rabbit. You talk to him." And then the the camera kind of pans and zooms on this uh, young lady sitting there, and he's like, "Uh, send her straight to my office." <laughs> <laughs> right. Like you talk right. to the rabbit, I'll take her. And I wonder if he could tell from that black and white video that she was a redhead. Because when she walks in, he mm-hmm. seems kind of taken aback for a second. But... Yeah. Well, that's a good point because the, the film is in black and white. So yeah. that they're watching. But we, we will find out quickly that he's having flashbacks because this same exact scenario presented itself when he met Lisa for the first time. Right. Yeah. Um. But that doesn't get um, revealed to us until much later. Yeah. Um, so he tries to call Lisa. We switch to her in the house. She hears the phone ring, but she splits. She doesn't want to answer it. Um, they bring the girl in. Um, Buloff is trying to call home again. Um, and when he looks up from his desk, all of a sudden, instead of the girl from the video, it's Lisa sitting in his uh, in his office just for a split second. Um and so, you know, again, we're, you know, the film is really trying to uh, connect the dots here with, you know, what happened in the past without having to go and give you, you know, a full-blown flashback. Um, the girl introduces herself as Marianne. Uh, she's not talking. Um, and then Buloff tries to kind of intimidate her by making it seem like Uh, She doesn't have an alibi for when the murder was taking place. Um, And so she starts talking and they mention two names, one Ursula Stein and somebody named Kurt Mueller. And it's a very kind of convoluted 
list of characters, but basically the idea was that Mueller has a cocaine habit and he's also, I guess, you know, in hiding because um, the Shoreman gang is after him. So instead of sending Ursula to Fritz's to get the coke, they send Marianne because nobody knows who Marianne is. And so Ursula and Mueller are kind of in hiding. Um, <clears throat> and so that's the explanation for why Marianne was there. We don't really see her again after this scene. She just uh, shows up as a way of propelling the the story, but also giving us like a way to reinforce what Buloff is going through because it reminds him of the shit that happened with Lisa when she was arrested. And I think I'm not giving too much away, but I think when they go back and they show a flashback of him, I don't know if it was Reinhardt that she was connected to or Kaufman. Cause they mentioned those are the other two victims before Willie Zoll. And I think it was, I think it was Reinhardt that they mentioned, but Anyway, um, so Marianne is escorted out. Um, they say that we're going to keep her here for her protection. And uh, Lisa shows up. And she's like, hi, uh, can I have some money? I want to go spend your money. And uh, Buloff is like kind of relieved to see her <laughs> yeah. because she's not in some other terrible situation that he can't. You know, in other words, it's kind of like, you know, for for the listening audience that have children, when you don't know where your kids are as they get older and then every once in a while you get like a little bit of a of of some feedback from them. Either you see them um, or you get a message from them or you get a call from them and it's kind of like you're, you're relieved a little bit because you know, you're always worried about where your kids are. And this seems like the same thing. Like Buloff is like so paranoid that his wife is out doing terrible things. And then all of a sudden she shows up at his office and um, <laughs> it, he's like, it's, she shows up wearing that hat, right? Yeah. That cowboy hat. So she struts in there like she's Django. Right. <laughs> and then she robs him like <laughs> El Lindio. She takes his entire <laughs> wallet. And, like, and he's just happy that she's there because if she's standing in front of me, she's not with some other man. But she just took <laughs> right. her money and ran out the door. Yeah, that's yeah. OK. Yeah. <laughs> well, and what I thought was interesting and something that I did not catch the first couple times through. Um, after she gets the money, but before she leaves, she's still in the room. Yep. When they come in and Buloff gets the information about uh, Ursula and and Mueller. Right. Um, and that is really a key to what happens next. And again, I did not put that put two and two together the first time I watched this. Yeah, I think but I, right I, after I that the second time. OK. Uh, and not only. OK. The, the coincidental timing is just very um, unlikely but she right. was about to leave and then the guy comes in and says oh I got those files you were asking for and then she kind of like oh hang on hold up she steps back and not only that 
I mean, she hears the names, right? But she goes over to Buloff and kind of peeks over his shoulder and looks in the file. Like, yeah. And at that point, I was like, okay, we know there's some kind of mole or leak in the department because how else could these witnesses keep getting killed? And we see this scene after they establish that you know she'd been investigated and cleared for saying it's like, okay, she's feeding information to whoever's killing these people. Right. You know, so big mystery there. <laughs> yeah, and again, it, it's probably just my lack of being observant that I didn't figure that out the first time. Um but uh, I liked what they did next. So Buloff looks at the photos and we see a picture of Ursula. And then we kind of have this jump cut to Ursula's face and she's getting roughed up by the thugs um, in her dilapidated wherever, wherever it is that she is. A little shack apartment. Um, it's a little shack, right. Did you notice um, the, the scene, well, the, the shot where she's down on the ground in front of the bed? Did you notice the the face behind her under the bed? Like the guy looking out? Yeah, I did. I did. Okay. I think I did. So it was it was what's his name hiding. Yeah. And Mueller and, hiding under the bed. But his face was so still. I wondered if they just stuck a photograph under there <laughs> because his eyes aren't blinking no, or anything and I'm watching it again. Let's see. I've got the I got the scene right now. And she looks very German. To me, she looks like Eric Idle in drag. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Like he strolled <laughs> over from a Monty Python bit. Just... <laughs> well, and it's it's hard to say if the face under there is a freeze frame or not. It looks like it's moving, but that, that doesn't necessarily mean that it wasn't, okay. you know, a, a picture. Um, so... Uh, so the the thugs leave and they take Ursula and and as soon as they walk out the door sorry just one little detail as they're yeah. taking her to the door she turns around and looks at the bed okay uh-huh and the thugs don't catch that at all they just keep dragging her out and so the cops in this movie kind of suck the bad guys kind of suck we know the professional killer with his screaming victim in the middle of the night kind of sucks. And <laughs> ironically, right. the only person who doesn't suck at what they do in this movie is Lisa. Right. So. <laughs> yeah, and Buloff, he can't keep anything going either. Yeah. But <laughs> That's kind of funny. Yeah, I just, I, I didn't notice that. But yeah, she looks back right at the bed. Yeah, which is like um, the biggest and, tell in the world that he's under the bed. Right. You know, and they're just like, come and on. And I wonder, like, if, do you think that was the direction? Or do you think she just did that spontaneously in the scene? Like, I don't know. Unless yeah. maybe she lost an earring under the, <laughs> when they were smacking her <laughs> exactly. around. Because <laughs> it's pretty, I mean, it's it's kind of, it would probably be very explicit directions. Like, hey, as you're getting pulled out the door, turn around and look at the bed. Um, I don't know. We'll never know. Um, so the cops show up right after that. Um, and then we switch to Buloff right away, screaming at one of his, you know, um, subordinates saying, 
you know, who else knew that we were onto these two, you know, uh-huh. um, there's gotta be somebody who knew about this and, you know, in, in, unless you're an idiot like me, it, it, the only other person that knew besides the rest of the people in the police department was Lisa. So, um, although you could say at this point that maybe Marianne called somebody and tipped them off. Um, not if she was still in custody. If she's in still in custody and she's not allowed to make phone calls, then yeah, who knows? And it, it's like this entire police department can't figure out. Let's see who else was in the room when we were talking about Ursula Stein and Kurt <laughs> Muller. It, right. I mean, it's one thing to think, okay, maybe he doesn't connect the dot because he's kind of biased and whipped, you know. But right th- later, there's a well. I'm getting a little ahead, but it, it it happens, and nobody in this entire police. Not only that, nobody even mentions the possibility of a mole or a rat or a leak or whatever you want to call some cop who gives information to the bad guys. Yeah. It's like it's they're like, well, I don't know. They keep finding out right before you talk to the guy, he gets killed. Oh well. Nobody says we'll, we'll, a word. We'll just, Nobody mentions it. We'll just try again. Yeah, we'll keep going. <laughs> Don't make me get out of my car next time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> they should be tearing that whole police department upside down, looking for who the the snitches or the, the mole, right. I guess. But absolutely. Yeah. But oh well, it'd be a much shorter film. Too, so. Yeah. <laughs> So a bullet, a uh, bullet, Buloff goes and meets uh, with the rabbit, mm-hmm. um, who is the guy we saw in the lineup earlier. He's got like either a lazy eye or he's blind in one eye. Um, uh, he's permanently and... cross-eyed like that. Yeah. The, okay. the actor's name is Jimmy the Phenomenon. And, oh, really? Uh, I Google searched him. And his eye was always like that. I thought, well, he must just be some guy who could do that for long enough to get a shot but it seems like he's made an entire career out of being cross-eyed and wow good for him but uh, (laughs) he lived up until his 80s he died a few years ago i think but he was in a lot of comedies and stuff where you know a cross-eyed reaction is called for yeah yeah right get me jimmy the phenomenon yeah (laughs) we're gonna amp up the uh the campiness here with jimmy right um, but the rabbit, um, refuses a bribe from Buloff once Buloff mentions that Mueller is being investigated. But then the rabbit says, do you know anything about tulips? Uh-huh. And it's just kind of mentioned for the very first time, although as a viewer, we've seen the tulips placed on the coffin, uh, in the opening scene. But until this point, we, we haven't heard anything about tulips again. Um, scene switches and we're over at the docks and we see this figure in a brown coat flipping that same um, silver object that we saw in the beginning. Um, and then we finally see that the figure is revealed to be um, Robert Hoffman's character, who is uh, whose name is Max. Max Lint, uh, L-I-N-D-T maybe. Yeah. Um, and the other person in this place. And I think this is like underneath a, 
underneath some sort of boat in the dock somewhere is where this is supposed to be happening. Um, this other guy who's paying him off, I don't know if he ever is mentioned by name, um, but we find out that Matt, uh, Matt Max was hired um, to kill Willie Zoll and Kaufman and Reinhardt. Um, it's not mentioned, I don't think, explicitly that it's Shurman that's doing this, but we can assume that. Um, and so he gives uh, Max's money, um, but Max says he's out of here. Three jobs is enough. Um, I don't want to do this anymore, but the payoff guy is like, look, um, we need another one. And, uh, you know, what's the difference if you do three or if you do four? Um, and then there is this exchange of hashish, which is what I think that is. Um, the other guy in the boat, he's got like this big block of brown concentrated tar looking substance who he's breaking it, who he's breaking it off into little chunks and putting it into the top of a cigarette. Um, and he hands it to Max and um, Max starts to smoke it. And uh, he kind of gets this look on his face like that. He's high. Um, I don't think it could be anything else. Um, I mean, it could be that it was opium, but I think later on, in the movie, somebody mentions hashish, so I think that's what it was, or what yeah. that's what it was supposed to be, anyway. I think it was. Hash. Um, so, they tell him that Kurt Mueller is the target. I think they tell him, or we just assume that Kurt Mueller is the target of this fourth hit that Matt Max needs to do. Um, switch to Buloff's home. He's back again. Where's Lisa? <laughs> he walks in, and. Um, there's a note on the table and behind the note is a fresh flower pot filled with yellow tulips. <laughs> and I thought it was interesting that they really didn't draw a lot of attention to the tulips. They were just there, you know, in other films, it would be like, there would be a close up on the tulips and there would be some sort of soundtrack thing happening like ding. Right. But they didn't do that. And instead he picks up the note and there's a voiceover of what Lisa wrote on the note. Uh -huh. And, in the foreground of him reading the note, we see the tulips again. Um, so they're trying to draw our attention to it. But it's very subtle. Um, I didn't Lisa basically that says, until "Hey, the third time I saw it." Okay. Even the the tulips on the the coffin, I didn't notice that until the last time I watched it. And I guess I just I'm not very familiar with any flower that's not like a daisy or a rose. <laughs> okay, but it's funny right. that. Uh, you have the scene where the rabbit saying tulips, something about tulips. You know anything about tulips? And he just rolls his eyes like tulips. That's boring. Fuck <laughs> off, right? And uh, it would have been cooler, I think, if they'd put the the boat scene after this one to where it goes like smash cut. He walks in and there's a big base full of tulips and he doesn't even right. register. So. Well, that's kind of the that's kind of like the the beauty of the subtleness that this film kind of has. They yeah. don't really. Um, smash you in the face with all of the uh, all the clues and hints and stuff. Yeah. Um, but I noticed the tulips right away, even in my first viewing, simply because they were yellow, and I'm always looking for opportunities to see if the 
people who made the film are trying to kind of give you a literal um, connection to the, the term giallo. Oh. And oh. it may be that in 1968, they didn't call these movies giallo films yet. I don't know. But I mean, they knew that they were called giallo when the, when the, um, when the paperback books came out. So yeah. um, that, that's what drew, draws my attention. So um, Lisa basically says that she went out to have dinner with a friend. She says where she went. So of course, Buloff decides to go to find her at the restaurant. Um, when he gets there, she's not there. He asks the cigarette girl if he if she's seen this woman in the white jacket. And she says, yeah, she left in a red Porsche. Um, and this red Porsche is going to come up a few more times uh, now that it's been introduced. Um, and right after this, the next scene is we've got this kind of action music playing. And like, you know, there's, you know, Buloff is on the hunt. Um, and I don't know if you noticed this, but as Buloff gets in his car to drive away, there's a traffic light and it's, and it's sitting at red. And instead of it going right to green, the way it does in the U S it goes to yellow first and then green. And, you know, in the U S we only go from green to yellow to red. So the yellow is supposed to warn people, Hey, you're going to need to stop soon. Um, but it looks like at least in this area, the traffic light is giving you some attention like, Hey, get ready to go because we're going to move from, from red to green. And, uh, that I found that, you know, notable because it's not something that I see every day. Yeah. Um, um, it doesn't work like that here in Italy, but maybe in Germany it does. And maybe when it's time to stop it, the light sequence is reversed where it would still go from green to yellow to red to stop. Right. But I don't know why you'd have to you know, alert a driver to get ready to step on the gas. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, if you reversed or something, which well, that could have, that could be. I don't know. That's interesting. Um, but you know, like if you watch drag races, you know, there's there's a series of yellow lights that get the drivers ready yeah. before the green comes on. So I don't know. Maybe that's part of it um and just in a, as an aside you mentioned that the soundtrack was different uh for the english version right mm-hmm. on imdb so, for the music there are separate listings for uh, let's see what exactly they call it uh Okay, under Music By, it has Giovanni Fusco and Gianfranco Riverberi, which is a name that we've already come across. Remember the the reverb name guy that did the music? Yeah, yeah. Okay, then for English version, it says Richard Markowitz. Okay, yeah, I see that. And then a couple below that, Film Editing By, Daniele Alabizo. And then uh, for the English version, Stan, Stanley Frazen and Michael Posen. So okay, I don't yeah. Know. So it was edited in two different ways. I wonder if there is another version of this um, with a different soundtrack and a and a different you know style of editing. 
that you know yeah. is out there. Um, but I did notice that <clears throat> when it comes to the soundtrack, it was kind of all over the place. You know, sometimes we had what I would consider to be you know modern. Um, uh, contemporary type music and then you would also have like more classical type stuff it just seemed like it didn't have a any sort of theme and again um, we always talk about Jalo films and the soundtracks and the stuff that you know Morricone did and Bruno Nicolai and creating these very memorable main themes for these films and I don't think that we were at this particular point in history of the film, they really were really doing that yet. It was more like mood music for the most part. But then again, at the end, there is a song about Lisa, which is really terrible, but we'll yeah. get to that later. Um, so Buloff is driving around. He's having fantasies about Lisa while he's driving. And we <laughs> see some, you know, some flashes. And I'm, I think that's a body double. I'm um, pretty because sure. We never see Lisa's double. face. In those right. nude scenes. And the same thing in Carnal Circuit, whenever we get to that. Oh, okay. I think Because there are scenes in this movie where Lisa is dressing and they don't show the front of her. So I don't know if, you know, right. for, for these flashbacks that she was, um, she was used as, the, she was, it was, you know, it's probably body double. Um, So really nothing happens with Buloff. He just, um, he's driving around and he's having these fantasies. And then we cut to um, the roulette place uh -huh. and a really cool looking roulette wheel that doesn't look like anything I've ever seen. Yeah, I was um, wondering about that. It It's like the ball goes around the circle, but all the little slots with the numbers just stay still. And I tried Googling different types of roulette tables. And I just got results for like different numbering systems, but right. not like the construction of it where the wheel doesn't really turn. It's, I don't know. It, it's just yeah, weird. the numbers are the numbers are on the inside of the wheel instead of the outside. Right. And you don't actually spin the wheel itself like the in modern roulette. You spin the wheel and the ball, uh -huh. and eventually. The ball slows down enough to land in one of the in one of the numbers, but there's a lot more numbers on a modern roulette. While wheel too, the wheel so. is spinning in the opposite direction, so it kind of creates a bounce type thing and right. some suspense exactly. as to where the balls. This way seems just too easy to cheat. You know, I mean, if you spend yeah. enough time practicing with that thing, you'd be like, oh, I could drop it in the number eleven every time. <laughs> right, exactly. But I don't know, maybe they just maybe it was a budget thing. Yeah, I don't know. I, That's no a, I mean, maybe just, uh, you know, roulette wheels have evolved over time. But, I mean, in 1968, if you went out to Las Vegas, I don't think you'd see a roulette wheel that looked like that. So, yeah. um, so uh, we see the thugs that we saw at uh, Ursula's house. Mm -hmm. And um, Fritz, who's tending bar, gets a phone call, and it's Mueller. There's an interesting... Um, placement of a blonde woman doing her makeup in in on the bar um and you know there really isn't much to say about it but it's noticeable like she was obviously placed there to make it look like there's more going on than just the two thugs you know talking to fritz 
Yeah. But like, I wonder if she's some kind of prostitute or something. Yeah, I because mean, she's they not with anyone else, and they're not being very secretive about what right. they're discussing right in front of her. Right. Yeah. So yeah, maybe she's a deaf prostitute or something. She's in on it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, and and Buloff when he uh, interrogates Marianne, he says something like, "Okay, well, either you were." there for drugs or you were there for gambling or you were there because you're a prostitute you know those are the only reasons why you'd be there exactly yeah and she's working on so her maybe makeup that's it. so that kind of leads yeah. towards prostitute yeah. so um fritz tells Mueller where to meet to get the drugs um and the the thugs um pick up on this and i think this was planned it wasn't like it was you know i think fritz was giving this information out loud on purpose so that the the thugs knew what to do um and they i think they go and give max the info um as well they call him and give him the or they or they tell him they say okay we're gonna leave and and you know give max the info Uh what i thought was kind of cool the way they did this was while fritz is explaining what to do when you get to this place to get the coke Uh um they cut to the point of view of the the mueller character actually following the directions yeah um and walking in um and in this kind of gloomy kind of suspenseful situation um and of course max strikes again um and kills this Mueller person. And what <laughs> what they do now is um, Max, you know, does the same thing as he do, did before. He drops the the switchblade. He takes his clothes off, but this time he takes Mueller's watch and he pushes it forward thirty minutes and then breaks it, um, which I guess is to establish his alibi, which we'll see in a minute. Um, but also Max is in blackface. I don't know if you noticed that. I, I mean, it's not. I did notice that. It's not actually blackface in in the way that we know it, but he's just his face is painted black. Yeah. Um, so the killer is a thing, apparently. Right. <laughs> he's not going to sing "Mammy" or anything. <laughs> right. um, what struck me was when he, okay, a killer is wearing black gloves to not leave fingerprints, right? He takes the gloves off, and there's a shot of him peeling the gloves off with his fingers, and then he just drops them on the floor. It's like, dude, congratulations. You just defeated the purpose (laughs) of wearing the damn gloves. (laughs) Exactly. So, again, you know, professional point. But then doesn't he turn the watch? Doesn't he use his own fingers to turn the watch? Uh, Or does he? No, he uses the gloves. That's true. He uses the gloves on the watch, right? I think. Let's see, I'm going through it right now. Let's see, stab. Oh, good for him. He didn't scream this time. (laughs) So Max is making progress. Drop the knife. I I don't see why you got to drop the coat and the gloves and the hat like you did in the alley with uh, the Willie Zoll character. I I would think just get the hell out of there as soon as possible. Or wear a reversible coat, you know, just take it off, put it back on, and it's a different color right away but okay he drops everything yeah he's already done well and did did he have to go buy another coat gloves and hat again i mean obviously or does he have like a whole you know 
closet of them for every time he goes out to do his his uh, murdering. Well, there's a scene somewhere where I don't remember if it's happened already or if it's coming up, where one of the forensics uh, clue investigator guys is talking about the stuff that they found, including the knife and the gloves. And he says, oh, this is just uh, very common items that you can find in any chain store. Right. So why not send cops around to the chain stores and say, hey, has anybody (laughs) been in here in the last, I don't know, month that bought like five switchblades and five black jackets (laughs) and five pairs of black gloves? Again, the cops in this are leave a little to be desired yeah for sure (laughs) that's funny uh okay so we're back at buloff's house he's sitting in the chair waiting for lisa to come home um lisa has a good alibi he said she says that she went to this place and then she i guess uh made a call to the friend she was going to meet and the the woman says she was going to be late so lisa decided to go and meet her and they had dinner or lunch or whatever it was at the hotel where this person was staying. And then Buloff mentions the Porsche. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a minute, you know, she's got this look on her face like, uh Oh, what do I do? Um, but she has another good excuse, which is that she ran into somebody. I, f- I wrote her name down a little bit later on. Let's see. Uh, let's see if I can find it now. Maybe I, maybe I can't find it. Um, it's like Ariana or something. Oh, Irina von Klaus uh-huh. is the person she mentions. Yeah. Who who she ran into at the restaurant who has a red Porsche and gave her a ride. Um so there's all her alibis um you know check out. Well, not really. And Did Okay, when he was at the restaurant, he asked the cigarette girl, "Did you see a girl, uh, a woman with a white coat?" Yeah, she got in a uh, did she say she drove away in a red Porsche or did she say, I don't remember. Yeah. Okay. So maybe that, that would jive, but she it, might've said she left in a red Porsche. Okay. But. but as soon as he mentions the red Porsche and they do that cut to her face that you mentioned, that's the point where I checked out on her, the possibility of her being innocent and falsely accused. Because the look on her face said everything. And you would think right. Master Detective here who could, you know, get information <laughs> out of Marianne within five minutes in his office would have caught that. In, yeah. You know, but he's in denial or whatever. But um, just as a viewer, that was where I realized, okay, she is up to something. But then the question becomes, what all is she up to? Is she just having an affair or is she connected to the way all these witnesses keep getting killed? So there's still something to figure out. Right. In the movie. What, but if, if you go back and look at that scene, because I'm just watching it, when he mentions the red poor, she's turned away from him and she makes a face. Um, okay. So he doesn't necessarily see her reaction, but we do because we see, you know, the, the viewer sees it, so we arouse. They arouse suspicion with the viewer, but not necessarily for Max. Okay. And meanwhile, Max is so caught up in the fact that he wants to believe her anyway, and you know wants to wants to have this happy marriage that he probably wouldn't have noticed anyway. Um, and 
I think then he mentions that Lisa was friends with Reinhardt at that point. That's what I have in my notes, but I don't remember exactly what he said. Um, and then Lisa just... Um, she runs upstairs. Okay, that's what it was. She runs upstairs and she says, you know what? Um, you're so suspicious of me having a lover that I'm going to start having a lover now. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, wrong oh, thing no, to say. Bulov slaps her. No, Bulov slaps her, and then she runs upstairs. That's what it is. Right. Um, the, but there's the, the, there's mention of Reinhardt, which is you know interesting. So okay, um, and, and and in at least five or six different um, camera angles, the the tulips are in the scene. Yeah, they're so kind they of keep showing slapping you in the face with it, kind of like a Bulov yeah. did with her. When she mentions uh, Irene Irene von Klaus. Uh, in the subtitles, it says, uh, you know where Irene von Klaus is, don't you? Did they say that in the, the dub also? Or did they say um, who? In, in this, when she first mentions yeah. this character, she, she says, if I remember correctly, she says in, in the English dub the name and... The fact that she's yeah, she does say mention her okay. local yeah. I just listened to it. Yeah, she mentions like her that she has some sort of an appointment or like a like a a title of some sort. She's the head of the something something. Right, I but I thought it was kind of funny that she says, uh, "You do know where Irena von Klaus is, don't you?" And it probably should be who, because she doesn't go on to like give a location. She tells her who she is. Right. I think that is a, a glitch between the German and the English. Because in German, the word who, well, the way you say who is wer, W-E-R. Okay. And the way you say where is wo, W-O. Ah. So in English, well, in German, compared to English, where and who are flipped. Huh. And the fact that it okay. says, uh, you know, where Irina von Klaus is, well, I'm going to tell you who she is. You know, I, I think that. Oh, interesting. And it, and if it was just in the subtitles, I'd say, well, somebody must have translated the German script and forgot that word or got it wrong. But the fact that it's also dubbed that way. Right. So. Well, do we know if um, Luciana dubbed her own voice? It's probably not her voice. Yeah, probably not. Um, so maybe the script that the voiceover actor was reading from also had that translation problem. Yeah. But that's interesting that you picked that up. I would have never noticed that. So that's why we have an international um, staff here at the Jalo Chow Chow podcast. <laughs> I get to use some of my education. For yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Okay. Um, so before we get to the end of the scene, Bulov um, is looking at the tulips, and I think there may be a voiceover of a Rabbit saying, "Do you know anything about tulips?" And then all of a sudden, he's distracted because the phone rings, and we find out, or he finds out, that Mueller has been found dead. And it's just like, dude, again, you gotta be kidding me. Um, and then uh, we switch to this dance club, and. You know, there's where my hippies dancing score point comes in. Cool. Um, 
But I also noticed that this is one of the first times that we see uh, a scene where it's not really drab. It's like there's a lot of color going on in this particular scene, like these multicolored bricks. It's a very cool kind of environment with these low ceilings and um, it's just decorated like an appointed really like modern for the time compared to everything else we're looking at yeah uh, in this movie like everything else is very drab very uh, beige um, you know and the, like when we go to these places uh, where some of these people live it's very gray and dilapidated and run down and this looks very modern and we see Max and Max walks in and he meets up with this woman who has got this incredibly awesome pixie haircut and she says hey look I can stay with you tonight um, she basically throws herself at him and he's like uh, who says I want to hang out with you anyway yeah he, um, he kind of negs her <laughs> <laughs> but then eventually he's like oh, it's too crowded in here let's go to the go to the bar so they go to the bar and um, there's something I think correct me if I'm wrong but there's something where the alibi gets reinforced because he checks to see what time it is. And then he says something about his watch being slow or something like that. Um, but, um, and, and also take notice or I took notice the woman who's clearly wearing a wig sitting at the bar who lights both of their cigarettes and then says, Hey, get me a, you know, they ordered scotch, get me scotch, two scotches. Right. And she, then she checks the time. Um, she comes up later um, when when Mule, uh, when uh, when Buloff asks if she's seen Max and she says, I haven't seen him for about a month. Um, I'm jumping ahead, but I, I don't know whether that was a, a, a uh, an inconsistency in the script or whether she was covering. Oh, I Max think she was covering seen him. for him. She was covering. Okay. And the Um, the fact that he asked her what time it was and then made a point of, you know, did everybody see me ask her what time it was? And then. Right. That's him kind of nailing down his alibi, you know, because you could just tell somebody, oh, I was at the club at 1030. But then if nobody remembers, yeah, he was here and it was 1030. I remember because he asked me. Doi. Right. 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 So I guess he's at least professional enough to do that. Yeah, and I guess, you know, did he do that for the other ones or and we just didn't see it or is, you know, is is he starting to get a little bit more careful? We don't really know. Um So, but then he realizes that he doesn't have his lucky coin and he calls it his lucky coin. Now for the first time, we realize that this is a coin. Uh-huh. Um and later on we find out that it, it has a bullet hole or a bullet mark in it or bullet dent, which obviously saved his life at some point. Uh-huh. Um Meanwhile, we switch to the cops finding Mueller's body. Buloff finds the coin. Um, the Coke isn't real Coke. It's just baking soda. Um, the other cops are like, we need to put pressure on Fritz because obviously he knows more than he's leading on. Um, but Buloff instead says, please check for a red Porsche owned by the name Irina von Klaus. <laughs> like, yes. and And at this point, you know, unless you know a little bit more about Lisa and what her true uh, motives are, you're still saying, 
you know, that he's obsessed with what his wife is up to as opposed to this investigation of narcotics and homicide. Um, now, you could argue that maybe um, at this point, Buloff has put two and two together. And the reason why he wants the Porsche followed is because he knows that it has something to do with his investigation. But I don't think so. I think at this point in the film, he's still just trying to figure out whether she's cheating on him or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I never thought about the possibility that maybe he was suspicious about her connection to whatever kind of criminal thing in the past. I always just assumed he was keeping track of her because he was suspicious of her cheating on him. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. know. And th- when he calls home, have we gotten at that part yet? I've been kind of skipping around. Um, no, he didn't call home yet. Uh, so we, we, we cut to Max looking for the coin. Right. And then we cut back to Buloff having it. Um, and then we cut to Lisa in bed. She's reading a magazine. And we notice for the first time that, because uh, Buloff is back home now, we notice for the first time that they have separate bedrooms. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was kind of implied that anyway, but now we know for sure. Well, I think the um, first time he went in there, the the first time I watched it, I assumed that that would be like his kind of study or his den or his little man cave or something. But then right. later, I think we do see a headboard of a bed. Yeah, exactly. doesn't bode well for their marriage. But I found it interesting no. that, that he took the the lucky coin bullet thing. He took it with him. He right. finds it at the crime scene. He knows it's probably a clue. Why not hand it to evidence flunky standing right there? He takes it home and like he has to try to mind meld with it or something first. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. Well, and, and that's really just to set up what happens later when he catches Max um, because no one else knows about it. If he had handed in the the coin to the rest of the cops to have them do work on it. Um, but it, maybe I'm wrong because later on, I think he gives it to somebody to get fingerprints off of. Yeah, but he, he does. Puts it in an envelope. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Um, so Max goes back to the guy that's inside the boat looking for his lucky dollar can't find it he says he's skipping town um back at the police station uh they haven't looked for the porsche yet um no clues about what did i write no clues about tulips for i'm not sure yeah but well the, they must have meant the assistant named kruger had been in there and he asked him hey uh totally unrelated to anything else what do you know about yellow tulips <laughs> the oh, guy's okay. like uh nothing but i know you're about to call your wife again <laughs> yeah right <laughs> and and the the guy as he's shutting the door he's like shutting it slowly and watching to see what Buloff's gonna do so they, like they all kind of know that Buloff you know in the at the very least is distracted in, in this case by what's going on with his wife and maybe there's even more suspicion than that but they probably have an um, office pool about how many times a day <laughs> can he call his wife <laughs> <laughs> exactly uh, so yeah, he calls home and Lisa's on the phone. The line's busy. Um, they bring the guy in. Uh, yeah. So 
Buloff, I don't know if he go like it. It's not. It's not obvious whether Buloff went home. Oh no, he did. He goes back home because Buloff has. He went back home. He's looking at the coin, like you said, and then the next day he's at the police station. He brings the coin back and gives it to somebody for prints, and they don't. They don't find any. Um, he goes back and watches um, these old films of roundups. And for some reason, he has some sort of a hunch. And the first one we see is where they discover Lisa for the first time. And she's like, she has that same exact reveal as the Marianne character. Like she's sitting on a bench and she's looking over at the camera. With the white um, And so now we also. get a little. Yep. In the white coat. And so he, we kind of get a little bit more background on the fact that he's just, you know, we don't really know how long ago this was. Like, when did they get married? You know, like if if they're if if Ma- and the timeline may not check out. Like, if Max has been brought into town to kill all the witnesses as they get identified, um, how long has he been there? Because if Reinhardt was killed, and as a result of Reinhardt being killed, they brought Lisa in, and then Mac, uh, and then Buloff interrogates Lisa and she gets cleared and they get married. Like, it seems like this probably could have happened in the span of like a couple of months, but that doesn't make much sense for, you know, the fact that they got married so quickly. So, well, I think that makes sense depending on how you view the very end of the film. Right. So I, yeah, I mean, she was just, she was, she was, um, motivated to get married to yeah. Buloff. And she might have even order... been sent there, you know, to, to catch right. his eye. And right. he says later that she turned my head in two days. So yeah. apparently their <laughs> uh, May-December romance was pretty whirlwind fast. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah that, that's a good point. Um, so then they switch to another film and they see Max... And Max is uh, in the roundup, but apparently he was rounded up for no good reason. But we see him flipping the coin. And so now Buloff is able to connect the coin to the person. Um, meanwhile, the commissioner stops by and Buloff says, I can't tell you anything right now. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't even trust you. You're the commissioner, but I don't, I don't trust, trust you either. anybody. <laughs> um. Yeah, and then the next scene is when Buloff calls the club and the, way, uh, the the person at the bar says she hadn't seen Max since April. Um, yeah, so when Max was so, brought in, he gave his phone number as the phone number of the club. <laughs> it's like he didn't have yeah. a fixed address or anything. He says, like, ah, fuck it. You can reach me. That'd be like, yeah, uh, did... like on Cheers. You know, Norm giving him the number for the bar. <laughs> well, I'm always there. You can leave yeah, a message where I with live. Vera, but good luck. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe in the in the dossier of um, Max, there's more information about you know hangouts and stuff, and maybe that's where he like they don't have any known known address for him. Um, so instead of trying to find Max, uh, Buloff goes after the friend who is also in the video. Uh, named Schur, Eric Schur. Um, 
who works at an amusement park. And then we have this really cool ride montage with a po- couple points of view shots on these rides and stuff. It was pretty cool. Um, and um, Buloff finds this guy, but he won't talk. And so Buloff leaves. And as soon as he leaves, uh, he tries to call Max to warn him. And then Buloff comes back in and says, hey, you know, you didn't notice, but I didn't really leave. <laughs> and I was waiting for you to make a phone call. And now I'm going to pick up the phone and get the info that I need. And so um, I guess Buloff gets the information as to where Max lives and heads over to Max's apartment to take him by surprise. Um, the woman in the lobby won't give answers, but then he flashes his badge and she's like, oh, he's right upstairs. Uh, so Buloff shows Max the coin, slaps him around, um, eventually finds some hash in Max's pocket. And um, then he he takes Max into custody. And we see um, we see uh, Buloff driving. Uh, we see Max in the in the passenger seat with his hands in um, handcuffs. And then, uh, wait, let me get to it. Um, and then Buloff sees Lisa walking. Um, yeah. And then we see this red Porsche that kind of peels out and drives away. And I don't think we know whether or not. Um, it was Lisa driving or somebody else driving, but um, Buloff goes into, you know, in, in, in pursuit and drives after him with Max sitting in the car. And um, yeah, cause there is no way he could resist chasing that red horse. With, especially uh, after he saw her walking. Yeah. Yeah. So he sees her, he sees the red Porsche and the fact that I have the guy who just killed what four now of my witnesses <laughs> is sitting next to me. I, I must pursue the red Porsche. Right. So good for him. And a couple of flashbacks um, of her talking to him and him basically making a decision at this point that he knows she's cheating. Uh Um, There's nothing that he can do about it. He's not going to solve this problem. So we have this uh, this next scene, which is, you know, pretty pivotal. I'm still watching right now. All of this, all of these flashbacks and their flashbacks and fantasies combined together. Um, And then he I guess he's lost in his thoughts and then he has to slam on the brakes. And so at this point, um, they stop the car and I guess they're on the side of the road at this point. And Buloff takes the um, handcuffs off of Max and he says, I want you to do something for me. <laughs> and he says, you've done this before. And then the rest of the dialogue is inaudible. Okay, um, but right there. I caught something that, I don't know, maybe it's just my my inner Beavis and Butthead. But they're <laughs> parked. Okay, he stops the car. He's parked. He says, I want you to uh, do something for me. You've done this before. <laughs> Right, and then they <laughs> they show Max. Max rolls his eyes and licks his lips, <laughs> like he's expecting something completely different. 
Like, I'm, yeah, we're expecting to see Max's uh, head go down. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which, uh, <I> was, <laughs> but the way he just kind of smiled and licked his lips, I, I was like, uh oh. Yeah, he probably has done this before. <laughs> before he bought a switchblade and learned a new trade, sort of. Yeah, I'm watching it now. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> He's he's uh he's got a look. I guess the look is supposed to be yeah. In, just in case you didn't know already, um, you know you're 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 double confirming that you know I'm the guy you want. Yeah. Um. So we should assume at this point because it's not actually explicitly stated that Buloff decides that he wants Max to kill his wife. Um. When we switch to a scene where Buloff walks into the police station again. He doesn't have Max in custody. Max is gone. Um, somebody comes to tell him that the Porsche checks out. It is registered to, or, you know, it, it's not necessarily that it's registered, but this Irina Von whatever, um, she does have a red Porsche. Um, and so all of a sudden, Buloff is like, oh, shit. Um, I think I made a mistake. Um, and as he's running out to stop what Max is about to do with Lisa, the rabbit character calls and says, I have info on the tulips, but I can't say anymore on the phone. <laughs> of course. Um, and at this point I've decided that maybe we need to add a new Jalo score criteria, which is the person with the mystery, with the mystery information um, that can solve the case makes a phone call or sends a letter to the person who needs to know the information, but then decides not to give all of the information um, right away and ends up getting killed before they can reveal the rest of it. Because um, this happens all the time in these films. It's like, I have all the info, but I need to meet you. And it's kind um, of implied that it happened with the previous four witnesses. You know, because even the commissioner at the the murder scene for Willie Zoll. He's like, he called you and told you he was going to talk to you. Why didn't you just bring him in? You know, why right. put it off until tomorrow? And that's yes. just in this yes. one movie that has happened like five or six times, you know? So <laughs> exactly. yeah, it should definitely be a trope because th that happened in the uh, house with laughing windows. It's yeah. happened. And I could probably think of three or four more if I, Yes. I, I, I specifically remember um, Seven Bloodstained Orchids was one of them. Uh -huh. um, anyway, um, Buloff rushes home. Lisa's on the couch. She's got the black outfit on. She's listening to records. Um, Buloff is like in full paranoia mode. Um, and she's just sulking on the couch, talking about how she's living in prison or something like that. And then... Um, they make up again and they kiss again. Yeah. Cause and she knows how to shut them up. Right. And it looked like she was kind um, of being abusive with those 45s, the way she was cramming them back into their covers. <laughs> right. I have some friends that are big vinyl uh, fans and they would probably bitch slap somebody who treated their records like that. Sure. But, uh, but that's, that sort of vinyl sensibility is only kind of, happening recently like back when records were just the only thing you used to listen to music you kind of just threw them around and did whatever yeah and they used to sell um, them at grocery stores for like a dollar 
you know, the 45s. Right. So I guess she wasn't too precious with it. But Yeah, and I think there was a movie we watched that Matt and I watched where um, you could shove the record into this little player that was almost like putting a CD into a CD player, but it was vinyl. Yeah. I forget which... Uh, I forget which movie that was, but anyway. Um, so Buloff goes back to Max's, but he's gone. They don't know where. Um, Buloff calls Lisa and warns her, do not go out. Do not open the door. And so the first thing that happens is the doorbell rings and she opens it. Um, and, of course, it's Max. And for the first time, he gets... Uh, a look at her and you can tell that uh, he's going to be conflicted uh-huh. um, because he just has to kill her. But, oh, my God, how can I kill this person? Um, so he pretends to be an insurance salesman. Uh, Lisa lets him in. She knows very well that he's not an insurance salesman. But the one thing we find out at the end of the movie is that she didn't know who he really was right. and who he was. um who he was uh, working for. Mm-hmm. And there's this really fantastic um, shot where Lisa's sitting on the couch and she um, uncrosses her legs and then pulls her skirt up a little bit. And um, I did another freeze frame on that. <laughs> just because <laughs> oh, she if we're keeping track of how many looking at her. Right. Yeah. If, if we're keeping track of how many freeze frames I did that we're up to two now. Um, so let's see. Buloff goes back to the fair to look for Max. He's not there. Lisa makes a drink. Uh, Max kicks something under the couch. The phone rings again. It's Buloff. She lies and says that no one's there. Um, and in the end scene, Max approaches her and puts his hands on her neck. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't really know if at this point whether he you know, put his hands on her neck to strangle her or whether he put his hands on her neck um, just to embrace her in some sort of way. Yeah. Um, Did you notice the shot of the the two shotguns or uh, some type of rifle on above the mantle? Yeah. So I'm yep. thinking, okay, surely that's going to come in. You know, the whole thing about Chekhov's gun. You know, don't show a gun yes. unless somebody's going to use it. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, cool. Somebody's going to get their head blown off with one of those before this is over. And right. Nope. <laughs> it never happened. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, it drew my attention, too. And I think we did another we watched another Jalo. I think it was Deadly Inheritance where that really did happen. They showed a gun. And then at one point, somebody grabbed the gun. Well, and yeah, used yeah. it. Yeah. Because you, you as soon as uh, you see it, you expect it to be used. You know, right. If you, but it's, it's really just a movie. decoration. Yeah. Yeah. So, they got us on that one. Um, so um, let's see. Now Buloff goes to talk to the rabbit, but turns out that he is dead. He was run over by a car. And um, immediately after that, we get a flashback with a person who kind of looks like Lisa um, being drowned in a bathtub. But it's on screen for such a short period of time, and it doesn't really look like her. And this is um, one of the shots that they used for the cover art of one of the releases of the DVD or one of the posters or something. Um, so, and and uh, I'll go into more detail later. But basically, 
there was a, a point given for a bathtub murder, even though it was a fantasy yeah. uh, for the Jalo score. Because I was I was grasping for straws at this. Yeah, I don't know. It, uh, I'm looking at it again. I don't know if it's really her. Or I'm not. trying to check the dental records. <laughs> I paused it right where the right before the hand, the black gloved hand, oh, yeah. covers her mouth. Uh, that would be a dead giveaway. It could be her. I mean, the nose shape looks kind of the same. The the thing is, she's not wearing big fake eyelashes and a lot of uh, eye shadow because she's in the tub. Right. As you do when you're taking a bath. Yeah. Well, in some of these movies, they wake up with their makeup perfectly ready to go. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, you're right. I see like the, the side teeth are kind of jetting out. So yeah. Um, not really important, but just interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, I'd, so, I'd uh, count it as a bathtub kill. Just because yeah. it wasn't it, real. It didn't really happen, but it's okay. It's on the screen. Yeah. Uh, so Buloff runs home. He's still in a panic. Lisa is okay. She's in the shower. The next morning, Matt, Max shows up at the house right in the street. No big deal. Um <sighs> It's, Again, with the professionalism well, of these people. Yeah, I mean, it, it, in so many different ways, this violates so much logic. Nobody involved in that standpoint. scene should be meeting each other in the middle of the street in broad daylight <laughs> in front of the whole neighborhood. I mean, you right. wouldn't want to do it as the killer or the cop who's getting the killer to kill his... Right. <laughs> So Bulloff is like, okay, look, uh, I'm going to meet you at this abandoned factory. And they meet. And Max, basically, when they meet, Max is like, look, you know what was going on. Um, I went in there and I didn't do anything. I didn't kill her. But, you know, it, when when you called uh, and she told you that no one was there, I was there. So what do you really think is going on? She's obviously doing what you think she's doing and you... I should finish the job. Yeah, why else or, would you want yeah. your wife murdered unless she was, a, right. you know, an easy mark, so to speak. Yeah. But he, he kind of, he kind of defeats himself because at that point, uh, Buloff was going to tell him, Oh, look, uh, forget it. Let's call the whole thing off. Right. And he changes yes. his mind by saying, Oh, by the way, dude, the number I did on your wife right there on the couch, you even called and you know, you'll probably smell my sweat when you go inside, you know, so just being rude about it. And Bula flips again. He's like, uh, yeah. Okay. I think you okay. just sealed your fate. You know? Yeah. Finish the job. Yeah. But I guess, you know, we can, we might be premature in discussing this, but we, I'm not really exactly sure what Max's motivation is because he may not know who is really responsible for hiring him to do these jobs and Lisa's connection with those people. So he may just be in love with her or he just wants to bang her again. Um, or he may be more, you know, informed than he's letting on. And he's trying to put Buloff in a situation where he's going to kind of like either get fired or lose the case or whatever. Um, or it may just be that um, Max wants to escape and not get arrested for all the other murders. And Buloff is the only one who has the proof. So um, 
it's it's really hard to know at this point why um, Max continues to just um, keep this affair going instead of killing her. Um, there's a lot of different reasons and, and not just one. Um, so, uh, and this is the point where if Matt was in the call or, or, or on the podcast, he would talk about the fur coat. Oh, yeah. Um, that Lisa is wearing in this next scene. Um, they drive out to the coast and they are off uh, on this cliff and she's standing by the cliff and this really cliche moment happens where Max approaches from behind. He puts his hands out. You think he's going to push her off the cliff and maybe he was and then she turns around and um, instead they embrace Um there was again, a second. We really don't know when when they were standing there at the cliff, and it looked like he was going to push her off, right? But yeah. he doesn't, and then they kind of spin or they turn a little bit. For a second, I thought she was going to push him off, and that would have <laughs> made this like great. one of my top ten jolly right there. <laughs> but oh yeah, that would have been pretty awesome. Did. Yeah. Well, I mean, at this point, we still have almost a half an hour of the film left. So if that was going to happen, it would have, it, it would need to happen towards more towards the end of everything because then, you know, everything would have been revealed unless it was just, you know, like she knew that he was going to kill her. So she killed him instead, but she didn't know anything else, but who knows? Right. Um, but yeah, you're right. That would have been cool. Um, but they did a lot of, um, and going back to what I said at the beginning, at this point in the film, the first couple times through, I, fe- I felt like the film slowed down a lot uh-huh. um, because there were so many characters and so many scenes and so many different um, plot lines happening for the first hour. And then as soon as Buloff tells Max he wants to kill, he wants him to kill Lisa, it kind of everything kind of slows down. But in watching it the third time, I found that, you know, the pacing kind of worked. Um, you know, because of the way that they needed to reveal all the rest of the details of the story. Um, so I was, I was warming up to it in, in the, the article that I wrote in, or the review that I wrote on the Jalo score was basically like, yeah, the first, the first, you know, half of the film has got a, a good pace, but then after that, you know, um, but I kind of changed my mind a little bit. I think they really needed to um, stretch these scenes out a little bit longer just because they wanted to establish, you know, what the characters were up to. Um, but uh, after the cliff scene, we see that uh, Buloff has the case file and we finally get the proper spelling of Schurman, which I didn't get right uh, until, <laughs> until I saw it with all the O's and U's and E's and double N's and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so Buloff is going through the evidence a uh, picture of Lisa, you know, the, the coin with the bullet in it. Um, we switch back to Max and Lisa on the on the floor. I think that's her coat that they're having sex on. Yeah. Um, they're still at this inn at the cliffside. Um, and they make sure we get a good look at her wedding ring. She's rolling around on the floor with him. Yeah. So. That's cool. Um, next scene, um, Max and Lisa leave the inn and get into Max's car. And we realize that Buloff is watching them from his car. 
Um, Buloff follows them. And I think in the next scene, we get the tulips. And we get the... We understand the connection of the tulips. Um, Lisa goes over to the flower salesman. She's buying some tulips. And he says, yeah, take your time. Pick out whatever you want. And then all of a sudden, the uh, nearby payphone starts ringing. And she goes over to it. And so we now know, and, and when she picks up the phone and she says something about Harry, she mentions the first name, Harry. And uh, so now we know, I think, that um, the whole idea with the tulips is that's where, and we don't know if it's like this is the same tulip stand in the same location every time, or if they just decide, hey, wherever the tulip guy is today, that's the phone we're going to use to have our discussions like we really don't know but it's clear that Lisa at this point is talking to somebody named Harry and we don't know who he is yet because we we only know the last name of the of the main character that we're trying to mystery mystery character okay so do you think um, she's driving around town looking for the tulip guy and then she knows to use the payphone or that she's going to be getting a call at that payphone Assuming it's in a different place. Yeah, I mean, I'm just throwing that out there, but I think it's a little more simple than that. Um, I guess if they wanted to throw off the the suspicion, they would move around. But for the most part, I think we're supposed to assume that there's a tulip vendor and he's always in the same place. And there's a payphone that's right next to where he sets up. And that's where they have their clandestine, you know, call yeah calls between lisa and uh this mysterious person okay so how would eventually go ahead go no how would what how would somebody like the rabbit say that oh i'm hearing a lot of stuff about tulips i mean how the hell is he hearing anything about the tulips i don't think like all the little flunky guys or the the boat thugs would know that yeah she gets her messages near the tulips you know be sure to talk about it at fritz's or well, I don't know that the rabbit is hearing things about tulips. I, my take on it was the rabbit is just out and about in, you know, in the town square. And, you know, if he's an informant for uh, Buloff, he obviously knows Buloff's wife uh-huh. and he knows her connection with Shurman. And so if he's seen her... um yeah, he might be just across visiting the square this, from her or something. Yeah, like if she's seen always her visiting this, tulips and then right. inexplicably answering the payphone, which, you know, people back then uh, didn't normally receive calls at payphones. So, right. That that's probably the biggest um incriminating piece of information because it would be one thing if she went to the tulip vendor and then went and made a call on the payphone. Yeah. Cause that could have just been anything, but she's, she knows to be there to expect the phone to ring right. is, you know, way more incriminating, obviously. So maybe the rabbit saw her with the tulips and the payphone and kind of figured out cause he did make some comment about how I don't miss a thing. Right. Right. So I wonder if he put it together and he was just trying to kind of nudge Bulov into busting his wife. 
Right. But still, I, that that's kind of what I think. Okay. Well, you should have told him before he got himself killed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. uh, so the next scene, we have Max, who goes... I'm not exactly sure why, but he goes back to the boat where the guy who pays him for his hits lives. Mm-hmm. Um, any idea why he went there? Like, he's not getting any more money. He's not looking for anything. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he, he was going sets... there to get some hash. I mean, if we're supposed to, it could be. I mean, he's always carrying hash around, and we see him smoke it a few times. Maybe yep. he's just going there to get set up. And if this Shurman person is responsible for the drug um, trade in this area, then he would be not only bringing in the cocaine that everybody wants, but also the hashish too. So, right. Um, or maybe Max was getting paid for the, the Muller kill. Cause when we saw him get paid yeah, the first time, that was for the Zoll kill. Wasn't it? That's true. Yeah, that's true because he never went back to get his money because Buloff caught him right, before he could go right, back. Yeah. Okay. So, he's so now he's with Lisa. He drops her off to do, I don't know if she told him, hey, I got to go buy tulips and take a phone call. But he drops her off to do that. Uh-huh. And then meanwhile, he's like, I'm going to go get my money and then we'll meet back up again. Right. Um, so but instead, instead of getting paid, the guy's not there. And it's a bunch of um, Shurman's, uh, you know, um, thugs right. who beat him up, kick him in the <laughs> balls and say, you know, stay away from. Stay away from Lisa or stay away from Mrs. Buloff, I think they call her. Um, right. So in my mind, I kind of transpose the dialogue a little bit to them saying, stop banging the boss's woman. Right. Right. And then uh, Max says, that old cop is the boss? Because <laughs> right? he yeah. doesn't know who anybody is. Yeah, I, I don't think he does. And he's got to be wondering, you know, why did these thugs care if I'm banging this cop's wife? Right. right. So it's, I don't know. There's so many opportunities that people miss to, to yeah. catch on to things in this movie, but it, it's fun to watch. So. Yeah, because again, there's the question of does Max know that Lisa is more involved in everything that's going on than he understands or. Does he know this and doesn't care? But I think it's the first one. I think that he's kind of on a need to know basis for, you know, what he was hired to do. And he doesn't know like how it all connects up, you know, up the, uh, up the chain. But, um, uh, anyway, we go back to the scene where, um, Buloff is in his office. The commissioner comes back again and, um, he says, look, um, I have some, I'm, I'm going to have some stuff for you. Um, I'm working on the case file and the commissioner's like, okay, you know, for real this time, you're going to give me what I need. And, uh, Bulov is like, yes, you know, give me till tomorrow or whatever he says. Um, and so <laughs> at that point, I think Bulov sits down, closes the door, uh, sits down with the case file and I think he starts to, is it is at this point that he starts to write um, the intro or do we, I'm trying to see if we switch 
um, scenes. No, he gets the he picks up the phone first. Uh, he gets a call. Oh, he gets a call from Max. Max calls him at the office uh, to say, "I want to meet you." I'm not sure. Sh- oh yeah, Max calls Bullock at the office to say he's going to kill Lisa tomorrow. Um, and then I think he says something about I'm going. Do they talk about I'm I'm I? This is where I want you to meet me after that. I can't remember. Uh, let's um, see. I'm right at the phone ringing. Okay, Max in the payphone. Tomorrow then we'll make it tomorrow. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, blah blah. <laughs> yes, I heard. Uh, okay, but afterwards. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, don't forget to bring my lucky dollar. Oh yeah, okay. Okay, so uh, let's say 11 at the same place, which apparently is in the middle of the damn woods. But which we. But have. it wasn't the same place. I know, that's why <laughs> he they... said the same place, and then they cut to them meeting in the woods, and we haven't yeah. seen those woods before. No, the, if it was the same place, it should have been that, you know, bombed out factory parking lot area. Yeah. But there is one more flashback right after that where Lisa says, do you really want to marry me in spite of everything? Um, and Max or uh, and Bulov is like, I, I, I love you and I believe that um, you have nothing to do with everything that's going on. Um, and so now it's pretty obvious that Bulov has all of the information that he needs. He's putting two and two together. Um because now that he's now that he knows that Max is the guy who killed all the witnesses, he also knows that Lisa is probably the only one who knew who all the witnesses were because she's his wife. Um, and also they put together the tulips and the phone call. Um, he now kind of has everything he needs to know in order to write the case file. Um, and so he starts to write um, out the introduction and um he has i wrote in my notes exquisite penmanship um i haven't written cursive in a long time um and i probably could have written it that well like when i was in i don't know fourth grade or fifth grade but if you ask me to write cursive like that now forget it uh it's something that you have to practice i I guess um yeah i i forgot about cursive as soon as i got out of high school so (laughs) And we don't know if the hands are actually um, uh, John Mills' hands writing or somebody else. Like yeah, a, you a stunt hand writer. Yeah, the hands look a lot younger as they're writing. Yeah. But the important thing yeah. here is that, and he even literally underlines it, Harry Showerman or Schuerman. Right. So that connects the Harry that she was talking to on the phone with the exactly. Showerman he's been chasing through the whole damn movie. So yes. that's cool. Yeah, it, I, I thought it was cool how they did that. You know, they've been referring to Shoreman the whole time. Uh-huh. But when Lisa calls somebody, she says, Harry, and now we get the connection between the two. Right. Uh, next scene, it looks like Lisa and Max are in the car making out, but I could be wrong because um, you can't really tell. And then um, I think they are the scene in the car moves on. You see the, the window roll down. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just for a he's got that second. one little stupid band-aid on his face after those thugs getting, yeah, from getting... kicked his head inside out yeah <laughs> that's all it is <laughs> tiny little band-aid uh 
Okay, so we're back to Max. Uh, I'm sorry, we're back to Bulov. He's been in the office all night long. He's got the five o'clock shadow. His hair's all messed up. Um, and the, the the guy who's like one of his, you know, um, underlings comes in and he says, look, um, I'm going to put this case file in this locked drawer. Um, if anything happens to me, I want you to give this to the commissioner. And he leaves. So and it leaves apparently to meet up with Max at 11 at the place that they met before, which isn't the place they met before. Right. Um, cut to uh, Max and Lisa in the hotel room again. Lisa laying on the floor um, nude and Max very, very sweaty for some reason. Um, <laughs> and she's not like she's dry as a bone and he's super sweaty. But she's perfectly um, still. Did you notice that? Yeah. Yeah, so for a second, yeah. the first time I saw this, I was like, is she dead? Did he kill her? Oh, that's true. You know what? It's so funny that I didn't, maybe I didn't even think of that. Yeah, yeah I think the actress like was even holding her breath for that shot. Because the second yeah. and third time I watched it, I was looking pretty carefully to be like, does she breathe? Or are we supposed to think she might be dead? Even though we saw her in the very first scene of the film. But, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool, actually. I, I don't know why I never noticed that until you mentioned it, but at this point, we still don't know as the audience whether Max killed her or not. Yeah. He lights up his joint. Um, she's still laying on the floor completely motionless. Yeah. His Jimmy Randy. He's smoking the joint a little more. And then she says, Max, why do you like to make love on the floor? <laughs> and now we know that she's not really dead. You know, I feel kind of cheated out of out of this moment from my own um, stupidity or whatever you want to call it. Like that would have been a really cool reveal if I had realized what was going on. Um, and maybe I like the only way that you would know for sure or, in, or the only way that you would really be taken in by that moment is the first time you watch this. Yeah. Because once you realize that she's not dead, then the second and third time you watch it, um, you know she isn't. And there's no suspicion. And if I hadn't, if I had thought um, that maybe Max had killed her, I would have only noticed it or thought that the first time. So I feel kind of cheated out of that little trick or twist, if you want to call it that. But whatever. It happens all the time with me. Um, and so uh, she asks him for some of his cigarette and he says oh it's a special kind of cigarette and she says I know no worries um, in fact I can get you a discount no she didn't say that <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm thinking um, she's had I've had better um, so they share this joint and they have this uh, moment but then Max says look I've got an appointment and he goes into the bathroom and he puts a switchblade inside the sleeve of his sweater. Um, and, and the, oh, and then we have the scene where she's putting on those leather boots and we are up to freeze frame number three, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. Uh, right before that, when he comes back, he goes in the bathroom, he gets a switchblade and then he's walking back in and he's kind of holding it. Right. It's kind of a fake out of, is he going to kill her? And then she turns around and he jumps back into the bathroom. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, you're right. Yep. It looked like the second 
fake out of whether or not he was actually going to kill her. But alas, he doesn't. Yeah, and then she puts her stockings on. Are those stockings or boots? They look like boots. Yeah, it reminded me of that scene in uh, The Graduate. Yeah. <laughs> You're trying to seduce me, aren't you, Mrs. Robinson? Seduce yeah, yeah, me. exactly. But they're like leather boots. Yeah. Yeah, it's too bad that Matt... Uh, Matt needs to watch this, because just for the fur coat and the leather boots. Yeah, in slow um, <laughs> Like I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so... Uh, it's clear at this point that Max does not want to kill her. He's in love with her. Um, and the knife is for somebody else. And obviously it's for uh, Bulov. Right. Something um, interesting, just real quick. This scene here, after she puts on her boots and he's ready to go, I notice that for the first time in the film, she is dressed all in black until she puts yeah. that white coat on. And right. this is the day when... Uh, you know, a lot of death is going to happen, right? Well, she had a black outfit on um, oh, when wait. Max comes to the door. Yeah, she did. And it's a little bit different of an outfit, but, you know, this one's pretty slick. So at the very last moment, she gets on the phone and calls somebody. Obviously, it's it's Harry. But I don't know. Maybe it isn't. I don't know. Who else is she in, involved with besides him? So... We, Who knows? <laughs> it could be chick. the third person. It could be the milkman. She's all over the place. Yeah. So now we're out in the middle of the woods. Um, Buloff uh, confronts Max with his gun. Um, let's see here. What are my notes? So now Bulov, who knows everything, um, realizes that um, that Max was never going to kill her or would have killed her by now if he if he had really been intending to kill her. So um, and this is that scene where you say, I, you know, I know my wife. Um, it took her two days to get into your blood, just like she got into mine. Mm-hmm. Um and so he's going to take Max in and Max is like, well, you realize what's going to happen to you if you do that, because you've got all this, you know, blood on your own hands. And he's like, I'm perfectly willing to pay the price for this. Um, and uh, let's see. And I think at that point. Um, Max uh, pulls out the switchblade and stabs Bulov mm-hmm. and kills him. Which isn't something that I expected to happen. Although, you know, if we realize that, you know, this whole movie has been a flashback from when the funeral took place. Right. That who is it that who is it that's, you know, being who's who died? Yeah. Um, well, this was so unnecessary, too, because if Buloff, being the trained, experienced uh, detective cop person that he is decides, you know, I don't care if I get in trouble for my part in this. I've already written out my uh, confession and put it in the drawer for Seeger to give the commissioner in case I don't show up. Why meet the guy out in the middle of nowhere? I would have him meet me at, like, the, the busiest patio cafe on 
the city square and as soon as he shows up have 10 uh, guys in blue or whatever color German police wore in the 60s surround him and take him but no I'm going to go out there he's 30 years younger than I am probably (laughs) I'm going to somehow sneak up on him in this place it isn't like the black forest I mean I'm surprised he snuck up on him at all ninja but (laughs) you know this guy's a professional killer half my age and I'm going to meet him in the middle of nowhere all by myself and then explain to him that oh yeah by the way I've decided to arrest you and I don't give a shit what happens to me it's not the smartest guy in the world right well you know if they if they had done that then they wouldn't have had uh, the scene that follows which is um, the commissioner reads the case file Uh um, with all the implications of who's involved Um, but before reading all this kindly do the following Uh, (laughs) send your guys out to this particular address and so then we have this big ending scene where um, Max goes back to the inn. Uh, Lisa isn't there. He sees the cops show up. He tries to escape. Um, okay, so where, where do you think Lisa him. went? Because he was fully expecting her to go? be there. Right? Well, Lisa's, yeah, Lisa split. Where did she go? I mean, she may have stopped home, but ultimately she goes out to see Shurman at his mansion, right? Yeah, because she called him as soon as Max left. Right. And she knew he was going to be coming right back, or so he said. So I think during that phone call, Harry Shurman told her, get out of there. So maybe there was a mole in the police station. Oh, in addition to Lisa. Yeah. Because. Because that's the. You know, so. Right. Yeah. Because I don't think she was expecting Harry to say, uh, where are you? Come here. I, want, I must have you right now. You know, whatever. Or she would have left a note for him like she did with uh, Max when she went to that restaurant that she didn't go to. Yeah, that's a good point. So she was warned. I to get out of there. I think so. Yeah. So, yeah, so somebody else knew that someone was coming, but then again, um yeah, I don't know. It, he said he had an appointment with Buloff at 11 and that he'd be right back. So, it's not like a lot of time had transpired. Um and I guess the question is if she knew what was going to end up happening to Max ahead of time, then she would have known to leave right away. But it's kind of not clear that she knew that. So if she called Harry and Harry told her what was going to happen and uh, get wait, out of there. That happened before we saw uh, the commissioner open the package. Okay, never mind. What, that she made the phone call, you mean? Yeah, she made the phone call. Didn't she? As soon as he left? Yes. Yeah, she puts on her coat, she sits on the bed, she grabs the phone. Okay. Max and Buloff in the woods. Stab, stab. Okay, then we see the commissioner (laughs) open the file. Right. Or maybe somebody had already opened it. Because, yeah, we don't see him open it, we just see him pull the papers out. 
Well, and the other guy was given the key and knew it was there. So yeah, so maybe Seeger, maybe he's the mole. Maybe he's the mole. Yeah, because he's the one that, oh, yeah. sorry, I forgot about that red Porsche bullshit you mentioned last <laughs> night. <laughs> right. I'm so sorry. I'll get on it right away. Yeah. yeah. So maybe everybody's a mole. I don't trust anybody. Well, I, I mean, I don't know that. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting point to consider, but I think probably the reality is that they just didn't really need to, to tie up that loose end of why isn't Lisa there anymore? Um, because they were going to have this action packed sequence with, you know, Max being chased by the cops and the dogs and everything else. Yeah. But they could have just um, had him had the cops approach him as he was walking in and then chase him into the woods. But they go through the trouble of taking us up into the room and he's looking around <laughs> and he can't find her. And then, oh shit! Here's the. But were they were the cops already there when Max shows up in his blue car? No, I think they pull up I'm... as he's in the room, seeing if she's in the. Okay, so he pulls up. He goes out of the car. He goes into the the love shack. And yeah, and then he hears the uh, the cops show up. Yeah. So now and now he knows they're on to him. Um, he walks out the, the door. He goes out the back. And um, here's the other weird part. Um, <laughs> the it looks like it's the same woods yeah. that he met um, that he met Buloff in. Yeah. Um, and if that's the case, then why did he have to drive there if it's right outside the back door of the inn? Uh, but I don't know. And they do a they do a few times during the sequence. It looks like they have some sort of fisheye lens on the cameras because it's like very wide, and you know you can see like the the edges of the of the frame are like tapered a little bit. Yeah, like, where he's know, running past the trees. And yeah. another thing, okay, for the how much people in this movie suck. Okay, they send a uh, at least a couple patrol cars worth of cops. And including Siegert, who's Max's, uh, not Max, uh, Bulov's main assistant, I guess, or deputy, right. or whatever they call it. They don't secure all the exits of that house before they start blaring their sirens and, you know, yeah, letting their presence be known. I mean, these uh, local <laughs> cops in Tennessee would have had the sense to surround the building before you barge in there looking for the guy. Right. And then, okay, now we get this foot chase through the woods, and (laughs) they got the dogs, right? Yeah. Like actual German, German shepherds. (laughs) Right. Take him off the leash. Let him go catch the dude and chomp down on his leg or, you know. Yeah. Why? Right, exactly, because otherwise you can only go as fast as the guy holding your leash will let you go. Right. And those dogs yeah. can run faster than Max, and they can sure as shit run faster than these idiot cops who don't know how to surround <laughs> a building. And, and speaking of surrounding, exactly. when he stops behind the tree, they're like, "Stop! We have you surrounded." No, you don't. <laughs> no, we're we're just in front of you. That's it. <laughs> You're not surrounded at all. <laughs> but Max, Max decides that he's going to take on the entire force with his one gun and start shooting at people. Which he obviously has never shot before. I mean, the way he's just like, bang, bang, he's not even pretending to aim. And too bad they weren't close enough for his uh, switchblade. I was going to say, he's only good at a switchblade. Yeah. 
and 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 they're shooting at him with like M16s or something, you know. Yeah, <laughs> he's got this little shotgun. Yeah, cops in your so 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 Max is dead. He rolls over. All the cops come over, and you know they take a look at his body. Meanwhile, well, he looks like he's doing the see... gymnastics floor routine, right? Did yeah, catch... I mean, he doesn't <laughs> just fall. He like tumbles and spins and bounces up again and does a double half gainer before he lands and. Right. Good for him. Well, they needed to give the stuntmen something to do in this film, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So. So, uh, last scene, or almost last scene, uh, Lisa arrives in a taxi somewhere. The camera p- pans uh, to the left, and we see this gigantic mansion. Um, and then we see, parked in the driveway of this gigantic mansion, is this red Porsche. Um, and she runs over and says, Harry! She's so happy to see him. Um, and he's like, what are you doing here? Um, and he is like a good looking version of Kinski. Like he's got his hair perfectly quaffed and, and what have you. And he's, oh, darling. And he doesn't look, I guess he looks German. He's got the blonde hair and the blue eyes, but, um, anyway, he says, stop acting. I know you too, too well. And don't pretend that you love me. Um, What does he accuse her of being with? Like, is 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 Harry in the same basic situation as the other two guys in this film? Is that the idea that she's just, you know, she's got she's got Harry um, hypnotized as well? No, I don't think so. Uh, I think Harry was using her, had her planted with the cop to get inside information, and. I'm not sure how they found out or how Harry found out that she was banging Max. But I think if if Lisa loves anybody, it's probably Harry. And the fact that he just so coldly dumps her when he finds out about uh, what was going on with Max and now the trouble that is going to be, you know, the blowback that's going to come from uh, Buloff being killed. He cuts her off pretty right efficiently and coldly yeah so i don't so the the go ahead so he's pissed because um she got involved with max who was somebody that was working for harry Mm -hmm. and but she didn't know that or maybe she did he says you know don't pretend you that you love me or i know you too well or something like that so maybe she does know more than she's letting on um, so he tells her that, uh, Max was uh, part of the organization. And then he also says, I'll tell you something else that you didn't know. Uh, it was your husband who sent Max to kill you. And, uh, right. close up of her face. Yeah. She realizes, uh, the reality of what's just happened over the last 90 minutes or so. Right. And um, we go to blur and we blur back in to focus on her face from the beginning um, with the black veil and the tear. And you could clearly see from the film grain that it was stopped and then started. Um, And this is the last scene. We see the coffin being um, lowered over the, the hole in the ground again. 
Um, and then we see the commissioner, and the commissioner um, comes up to. Oh, we see the tulips again. It's you know just to reinforce everything we saw in the beginning. Um, and then from Lisa's point of view, as the coffin's being lowered in, we see the commissioner, and um, yeah, because it's you, we see the commissioner through the veil, which is kind of cool. Um, and he says, uh, your husband was an outstanding man, Mrs. Buloff, to the end. Um, so they show once more a close-up of her with the tear, like they showed in the beginning, and the movie ends. Um, and and the, the song starts about Lisa. Mm-hmm. But before we get into the song, um, the couple of questions I had at the end were the commissioner says that Buloff was a good man until the very end. Does that mean that Buloff never revealed that he had hired Max to kill his wife or is the commissioner just kind of (laughs) dismissing that because Buloff is dead? Well, that might just be the script for any dead cop's funeral. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah whoever okay. they were that's true uh i don't know because he'd have yeah, to because know the that commissioner... it's going to come out you know you can't just arrest max and not have max say hey he wanted me to kill his wife by the way you know so and then the way he was like uh right before max killed him he said that's okay i'm prepared to take whatever right comes yeah, so it sounded to me like he'd already written down a confession in that file. Right. So. But the problem is, shouldn't Lisa get arrested? Didn't he implicate Lisa in the in the file? I don't know. I hadn't even thought of that. Uh, you know, why, like, why is she just, you know, why is she just being considered to be the, the widow? You know. I don't know. Maybe we're reading time, too much into to put... his, his report that was in the file. Maybe the report was just, oh, uh, you know, a straightforward, I noticed this uh, suspect in one of the the roundup videos that had this coin, and I found this coin at the murder scene, and we traced the prints back to whatever, or I tracked him down at this club, you know, whatever straight, plausible story he could come up with. Right, right. And left Lisa out of that whole part and by the time he's out in the woods uh, with Max at gunpoint maybe he decided you know if I do take you in and you do spill the beans on everything else I'm prepared to accept it where I, I didn't exactly confess to it or spell it out in the report so it's so I, maybe Buloff didn't really figure anything out, and the Schurman case isn't solved at all. Oh, I, mean, I don't think the, it the, is. the dossier. The dossier that they're all reading from is Schurman, but um, if 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 Buloff really understood what was going on, and that Lisa was involved, um, they would have been able to arrest Harry, I would think, because he would have all the information that he needed. But he didn't have that. All he basically did in the file was to implicate that Max was the hired hitman who killed all his witnesses. Um, yeah. I don't think his so, report would have gotten anywhere near to 
Schurman, who would have just right. solved the the cases of the the dead witnesses. Right. So. Yeah. Know. So Lisa isn't really implicated at all in this case. She's just considered the you know, the the uh, the dutiful widow yeah. of the cop who did everything he could. Yeah. Um, so he probably doesn't implicate himself in the file, but um, he was prepared to fess up to the fact that he tried to get Max to kill his wife. If that if it came to that when he was going to bring Max in, like you said. Yeah, and they could have spelled that out a little better, too. You know, because yeah. for us to have to sit here and go back and thread through it and try to find just the <laughs> right. right angle to look at it where the picture makes sense. Right. Uh, yeah, it's. I guess he did just a straight report, but then decided he could live with confessing everything at the end. Right, if it came to that. Yeah. So, now that they've killed... Max in the woods they have their killer because they'll probably find gloves and switchblades on them and that's probably they're probably well yeah they were exactly pointed to him through the uh, report but I don't think that brings them any closer to catching or indicting Sherman for anything right so the case right. goes on case goes on and, and if Lisa there was is... another mole in the police station like Seeger maybe one of the other guys right. that would be just exactly what they wanted even though the way it played out nobody could have foreseen yeah so, right that's cool yeah and so the very last scene you know we see Lisa with a tear and I guess the question that I want to ask is is it a fake tear and if it's not a fake tear who is she really sad about <laughs> I mean she didn't really love Buloff but she's at Buloff's funeral and she's crying and she might be fake crying or she might be crying because indirectly she um, loves Harry and Harry cut her off or maybe she's just crying because of the situation that she's been put in I and think it's, not- it's kind of a Rorschach test of an ending you know, where yeah. you could read it a million different ways. If she was truly in love with Harry and Harry was the only person she cared about, she's upset because Harry just kicked her to the curb. Right. Uh, if she was really in love with Max, which I don't really get, I think they were just fuck buddies who shared hash joints once in a while, then <laughs> <Right>. she'd be <laughs> upset about that. Uh, it's possible that she realized that. Um, of the three men in her life that we see in this film, because who knows how many others there were. Um, yeah. Buloff was, even though he was kind of uh, abrasive in his uh, clinginess and paranoia, he was probably the only one that was actually decent to her and right. wasn't using her or uh, something like Max was. Or it could be a combination of all three. She could have realized that not only did my sugar daddy criminal mastermind guy kick me to the curb, but right. the the older gentleman cop that I was married to, not only is he dead, which he probably cares less about than anything else, 
but he was trying to have me killed, <laughs> right? And the right. guy that the the studly insurance salesman that came to the house. <laughs> he was a hitman. He was coming to kill me, and he could have killed me at any time. And, oh, my God, I was on the cliff with him. What was I thinking? And, but <laughs> he's dead, too. So she's just in a world of shit. And, yes. Uh, I don't know. I had a friend back in the day that he listened to a lot of hip-hop, and he was like the whitest country's cornbread dude in Tennessee you can imagine, right? He even spoke with the right. twang and everything, but he liked to talk like he was from the hood. Right. Right. And I don't know if he got it from a song or something, but one of his phrases was always a hoe always fucks herself in the end. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, and I used to tease him like, what? She fucks herself in the ass? He's like, nah, man, at the end, in the end, you know what I mean? And I was like, okay, (laughs) slow down, you know, DJ Jethro. But um, that's kind of what happened here. So. Oh man, <laughs> yeah, exactly. She's left in a in a predicament where she has no support from anyone, other than the fact that maybe she got some money from from the, the insurance policy related to yeah, police pension or something like that. But. Yeah, but see, I wonder too, knowing what she knows, I wonder how long uh, before Harry sends somebody to kill her, because you can't have that loose thread floating around out there right right especially one that's been scorned by you kicking her to the curb she 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 knows things that could get harry in trouble so i doubt yeah you know i think the sequel to this would be uh kind of interesting the black veil for harry (laughs) 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 yeah maybe that's it she's she's now afraid for her own life yeah could be Cool. Well, that is it. I mean, the rest of the film is a couple of montages showing the main characters one more time. And then we have the cliff scene again with the with the um, scrolling credits and that terrible song um, that I will probably throw into the podcast when I do post-production at some point. Uh, Maybe maybe the intro. So when I when I do the podcast, I like to have a song from the film right after the intro and then I like to have a song from the film when we start talking about the film but I don't like it to be the same one and I usually can find two different things um, from the soundtrack standpoint to play and so I think like uh, I'll open the the podcast will open with this Lisa song which is really bad but anyway real quick before we before we summarize as far as the Jalo score is concerned um, I made some assumptions and I, I kind of stretched the rules a little bit when it came to awarding points. So um, I considered the killer, quote unquote, as far as the Jalo score is concerned, to be Max because he was the one who really did all of the killings. He was the one who wore the black gloves and so on. Um, so uh, but I didn't give the film credit for it being a unknown killer or a mystery killer simply because you know we know that max is the guy that's making the doing the killings pretty early on in the film yeah but the film gets points for having an accomplice for having a nude scene uh urban location um 
let's see, there's a body count of at least three. I think I, I think I included like the people that were talked about ahead of time, but even if I didn't, you know, you've got um, at least three with between Zoll and, um, and Mueller. Mueller and then at least, and... And then at least one more. Um, well, it we happened have, off screen. Uh, the rabbit was killed. Right. And then, yeah, um, I don't know whether I, uh, Max. Yes. Uh, so, no, does see, it count when, uh, does for the body count, does it count if the killer's killed? No, it's, it actually says, and I must've written this ages ago. This does not include, not include the, the ultimate demise of the murderer or anyone accidentally killed while pursuing the murderer. Oh, okay. <laughs> when did I write that? It must have been years ago. I haven't read their rules. And let's see. uh, So there's a funeral. There's a bathtub murder. There's a chase scene. The city map. The hippies dancing. uh, The J&B bottle. And the odd clue I gave credit for for the the silver coin. So uh, a black veil for Lisa gets a whopping 52 points on the Jallo score, which isn't very much. Did you get the J and B bottle? Yeah, got the yeah, J and B okay. bottle. Yep. All right. So it, it got the most points in those little signature one pointers. Um, so it's clear that you know Delamano, if if it's if it's his responsibility, was kind of playing around with some of the tropes that you know would become a little bit more popular in a couple of years. You know, you can you can see the progression from this to um, what have you done to Solange being like a, a very straightforward classic slasher murder mystery. But then the, the one that follows, what have you done to your daughters is more of a police crime movie because I think the killer in that movie is identified immediately. And it's really just about the police going after him to find him. But going back to what I was saying in the beginning, um, the third time for me was definitely the charm. Um, I didn't like this movie that much the first time. Um, but this last time going through it, I realized um, how much thought was put into it, even though, you know, we can pick it apart too, but um, I thought it was, it was well crafted and, you know, the hints and everything. I think my biggest problem was that, um, it was too much of a crime movie for me than an actual Jalo, and that was why I was turned off to it to be in the beginning. And then it kind of grew on me once I realized what I was watching and, and you know, for what time period this was made in. And I also didn't really like um, how the movie switched to this kind of, you know, kill my wife for me um, thing, because I guess the first time I watched it, I didn't realize that all the stuff that was happening in the beginning of the movie would eventually get tied up and resolved at the very end. Uh, I think it was more about, um, you know, the fact that the movie just changed directions and we turned this into this thing where Max and Lisa were having all these scenes. And I think that's what turned me off. So um, I like it better than I did. And I think it's probably an important film to watch. I think so too. It 
reminded me of uh, Naked You Die, where the more I watched it, the more connections I started to make and the more uh, things like clues started bubbling up to the surface. And the more I watched it, the more I liked it. Uh, yeah. Of course, I've kind of been, you know, picking shit about <laughs> little details here and there throughout this whole uh, podcast. But overall, I, I did enjoy the film and I could see myself watching it again pretty soon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's kind of what we do in the podcast is we pick it apart more than it ever needed to be. Yeah. Um, it's kind of it's it's kind of the the pastime that we embrace while we're talking about these films. But um, yeah, I, I probably won't watch it anytime soon only because, you know, three times in the last few months is probably enough. Yeah. Um, but I'll definitely come back to it um, because it was definitely um, more well done and more well constructed than I originally gave it credit for. So um and I may need to go into the Jalo score and revise my um, review of it, but time will tell. Um, so that's it. That was good. Um, any last thoughts on this film from your end? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. So, ladies and gentlemen, that was a black veil for Lisa. We definitely went scene by scene on that. We took a long time. Um, we got all of our thoughts out. And, um, you know, don't call it the definitive commentary on it, but it's uh, pretty thorough. So I hope everybody enjoyed that. Um, we've been trying to do these uh, once a month. I've been trying to get them out once a month. And so far, I've been sticking to that schedule. So um, I hope that... Um, I'll be able to get this one um, through post-production and out um, by, you know, at, at the very latest, the end of July. And so, um, Al, you and I hopefully will um, catch up with Matt uh, in the near future, probably next month. And we're going to go back to the film we had planned on, which was... Um, Carnal Circuit, also known as The Insatiables, um, a film that stars um, Max's character as well as Lisa's character. Um, and Max's character, Robert Hoffman, is very enjoyable in Carnal Circuit. Um, the only difference that I've noticed between the two films is that the version that is available to watch for Black Veil for Lisa is way better um, cleaned up and better fidelity than what's available for Carnal Circuit. But it's still, um, it's still, it's still a fun film to watch. So we'll take care of that uh, next time on the Jalo Chow Chow podcast. Um, just a reminder to everybody, um, you can send us emails at jalochowchow at gmail.com. There is a Facebook 
group that you can request access into. And we've had a lot of people um, over the last few weeks um, request access. So welcome to all the new members that are there. Um, the Facebook group is called Jalo Chow Chow Volume 2. Uh, my website is thejaloscore.com. Uh, where you can find my website and all of the scores for all of the films that we've talked about for the most part. And um, also, IHateMattWall.com. Just give a plug for Matt in there. And, um, of course, the Jalloholics Facebook page also is a great place to have a discussion. As well as the r slash Jallo Reddit or subreddit, as they call it. So those are all the resources. I will put this out uh, with a link to um, the YouTube version of this film in case anybody wants to watch it there. Um, and that's about it. Any last words, uh, Al, from you? Uh, nope. I'm all talked out. My throat's getting raspy. and <laughs> I hear you. Uh, excellent. So... All right. Well, until next time, ciao, ciao, everybody. Ciao, ciao. didn't do a good Matt ending. <laughs> he usually does well until next time, everybody. <laughs> right. He finds that last little <laughs> drop of gas in the tank to kick out a <laughs> great goodbye. It's just an enthusiasm because he knows he can stop talking soon. Yeah. <laughs>